Hey, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. This is episode 202, and the date is, what is it, Wednesday, April 24th, 2019, starting at 8.04 p.m. in Denver, Colorado. So this is going to be, joining me today, we've got a bit of an experimental episode where we're going to be talking about, first, the history of the development of the significations of Pluto, but also uh, the broader question about how astrologers developed the significations of other outer planets in general and some issues surrounding that. So joining me today is in the studio is Kenneth Miller, uh, Sam Reynolds, and Lisa Shine. Welcome, everybody. Thank you. Thank you, Chris, Thank you. for Thank having, you us. having us. Uh, and running our equipment in the background is Cameron White. Hey, Cam. Cam. Cam is in the back. Um, all right, guys. Thanks for joining me today. So you of guys course. are in town this week. You are both on the board of the International Society for Astrological Research, and you guys are in town for a board meeting, right? Correct. And planning meeting for our conference coming up in 2020. Yeah, let's hear a little bit more about that. So I think we've mentioned it in passing, but you guys are planning to have a huge international conference here in Denver in 2019. 20. 2020. 2020. Okay. Uh, and that's going to be in September? Yes, that's correct. Okay. Um, yeah. And we're talking about hundreds of people flying in from not from just the the US, but all around the world. That's correct. That's our China, intention. Brazil, anywhere we can find people where people are doing astrology. Cool. And you guys just finished the first round of speaker selection and announced your first 30 speakers, but you're still in the process of nailing down and figuring out other speakers for the Correct. conference? That's right. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and how many tracks are there going to be? Well, I mean, I think we're still figuring that out, but it's actually not just going to be like rigid tracks as much as uh, some, you know, blending of some things and multiple tracks between like mythology also crossing over in terms of history. We're 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 trying to find some way in which people realize how things hook into multiple areas, except maybe the the financial astrology track that that is going to be a track that's very different. Yeah, it's going like to be like a, an investment kind yeah, of um, yeah futures kind of thing. Uh, what our intention is, and I don't know what the final product is going to be, of course, right. but our intention is to code the lectures and the presentations in such a way that they'll be coded by different categories. So because so certain topics, as Sam said, cross over between more than one topic. And uh, it'll, we're hoping that'll help people choose what really like interests them rather than just having a rigid right. thing. But this there will the, be tracks and there are many of them. The exact number, I can't we don't remember know, yeah, off we right don't know now. Yet. Brilliant. Um, I know I made it uh, onto the traditional astrology track, if there is going to be one at least. Right. Yes. Yeah. But that also may puts you also for history, depending on your topic. Okay. You know, yeah. so that's cool. what I mean. Yeah. Cool. Well, I'm really looking forward to it. I'm glad that you guys picked uh, Denver and the venue looks like really amazing. I'm oh, actually yeah. looking forward it's to that. So far, we've only been there a day, but it yes, I believe it will be quite a lovely experience for everyone. Nice rooms, lovely yeah. setup. Yeah. Um, also, very spacious for those who are staying. Mm -hmm. um, there's lots of ground to cover to be able to do running. You know, there's skis. It's like really chill. Cool. Um, yeah. All right. Uh, well, looking forward to that. We'll of course have more information about that as you know it builds up and as we get mm -hmm. closer and closer. Mm -hmm. uh, thanks for stopping by today in the middle of all those board meetings and everything <laughs> to do this. Yeah. I've had yeah. both of you on the podcast like multiple times. I yes. think Sam, you've been on at least three times. Three times, at least three. Mm -hmm. Okay, and Kenneth, you've been on at least two, maybe. Three? I think three. I want to say three too. Yeah. yeah. Okay, that feels right. I listened to you for a few all times. Right. Yeah. 
because uh, right. Sam, you and I did the famous like duo episodes back to back of of um, criticisms responses to criticisms from scientists and skeptics and then also responses to religious criticisms that's right which is like one of my favorite sort of sets of episodes and then Kenneth we did the sidereal zodiac one at one point yes. and that's one of the like classic episodes yeah. that we highlighted uh, when Lisa and I did a retrospective a couple episodes ago in episode 200 mm -hmm. Um, but we've also been on another episode. Yeah, the Age we, of Aquarius one. That was my oh, favorite. Oh, the Age oh. of Aquarius, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, the famous charts one, <laughs> okay. which I don't know what we called that, but yeah. normal people versus famous charts mm -hmm. in the study mm -hmm. of astrology. And there was actually one other, which was the Star of Bethlehem. Yes, oh, the yeah. Christmas episode. Yeah. That was a good one. <laughs> yeah. So this is your first time on together. And of course, we're all in the studio. So a yeah. bit of, a, bit of an experiment. Right, first time in the studio. Yeah. yeah, but it's exciting to be here in person. So... All right. So where do we start with this topic? So I think the starting point is that Kenneth, you wrote an article for the second volume of the Ascendant Journal, which is the Journal of the Association for Young Astrologers. And that just came out last year, right? Yes. Came out last year, last spring. Um, and my article aside, it is a great issue. I mean, it is really packed with good articles. And I there's very few journals I could actually say that about. Uh, so I was Here's proud the... to be in there. Um, and what was the title of your article? Uh, it was Pluto's Weird History, Dumb Luck, Dumb Note, Dumb Bell. All right. So in this article, you chronicled the both the discovery of Pluto, but then focused on how astrologers started to ascribe meaning to that planet as an outer planet over the course of the past century. So has it, has it been? it's not even been a century now that it's been no. discovered. Mm -hmm. No, no, not yet. Mm. Uh, yes. So the purpose of the article... I mean, a lot of things we just sort of take for granted because it, you know we read it in books, or our teachers taught it, or you know we learned it in the tradition. Pluto's the one planet that there's all this uh, near living testimony about, and a lot of uh, print about. And when Pluto was discovered, astrologers immediately started debating its its meaning, and there were crazy debates and a plethora of meaning that almost seems like nonsensical to the modern astrologer because we all are kind of united, or are we? We'll explore that later in the talk, I'm sure, um, about the Pluto experience. And I wanted to trace what astrologers said about Pluto through the timeline of the 20th century and into the early 21st century. So the article covers the discovery. We, we look at the charts of the discovery covers uh, all the history and and then the latest stuff on Pluto from the uh, our flyby a few years ago where we discovered Pluto has a big heart and water and a blue atmosphere and all this other cool stuff. Right. The heart was perhaps the most important discovery. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Pluto has a heart. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. Well, this it was a really good article. I really wanted yeah. to congratulate you on that because I've had this for, yeah, you were saying. Yeah, mm -hmm. uh, but I've had this journal for a year. I just hadn't looked through all the articles yet. But I started read not just yours, but there's a lot of other really good yeah. articles yeah. Uh, in there as well. Yeah. So I really have to give a shout out to Jen Zart, mm -hmm. to who is the editor of the journal, yes. to um, Danny, who is the president, Danny Larkin, Danny Larkin Danny who's Larkin, the president yeah. of the mm -hmm. Association for Young Astrologers, um, and everybody that was involved Nick, in putting Nick Civitello, Nick Civitello. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I think there's one more person. I'm forgetting who did the illustrations. Oh yes, there was another person. Uh, I'm going to look that up really quickly so I don't. Oh no, I mean the the editors were, you know, Jen, Danny, and Nicholas. So yeah, okay. Shout out to them and everybody at the Association for Young Astrologers. It's a great journal, so I'd recommend checking it out. I think they're 
URL is like youngastrologers.org or something like that. Um, all right, so that's one sort of way we're going to be accessing this, and it's actually weirdly good timing because Pluto's like stationing retrograde like now, right? Today. Right. Yeah. Today. Yeah. 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 Right. I mean, it's like perfect. Literally today. If only Pluto, there was free will. <laughs> and, and for me, I mean, Pluto is directly on top of my Mars to the exact degree, partile degree, and exactly trying to Pluto, my wow. NATO Pluto. Nice. So oh, it's wow. like that we're talking about Pluto. Dang. It's like, right. It's like mm -hmm. a Pluto moment. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and Sam, I wanted to, not just because you're in town, I wanted to have you on the podcast where you're in town, but I thought you guys would make a good pair to be in this podcast today because I, I remember you've had a lot of discussions and you've brought up some objections to the way that outer planets developed their significations and you have your own particular like perspective on that as a broader topic, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I do use outer planets. Okay. I don't use them as rulers. And so that's confusing for people. You know, they're like, well... You know, have you just chucked them? And I think, you know, my question, and there are a series of questions that, you know, I'll, I'll even be presenting at NORWAC. And I think outer planets really present a larger question of like, well, what's astrology's parting or departure from astronomy? Because the significations or even the naming of the planets are coming from astronomers. It's not coming from astrologers. Right. And so that has direct implications in terms of how we look at these things. And when I talk about, you know, Pluto, Uranus, and um, Neptune, I think we also should be talking about the trans-Neptunians and the, the other KBOs, the Kuiper Belt objects, you know. So those other implications, because that's one of the reasons why Pluto also got demoted. Because, you know, we're discovering all these newer bodies. And so it's like, well, what do we do with them? And then we're also... You know, astronomers are naming them, and astrologers are just going like, "Well, yeah, okay, Eris, that's Eris," and so we're going to call that related to Discord and the myth of Eris. So. And this is one of the questions I have, which maybe go beyond today's topic. But do we include every object in the heavens? And then, if so, why? And what is our rationale for what we include and what we don't include? Right, because that's really one of yeah. the issues where, when Pluto was discovered, that wasn't yet an issue. It was like. One of the things that was clear from your article, for example, is just it was discovered, it was decided it was a planet, and then so there was just this natural assumption that it has to then take on some of the same role and we have to start incorporating it in the same way that we do with the other planets and assigning it rulership and drawing on the mythology or the name associated with it as having symbolic importance and all of these other things. That's, yeah. But then over the course of the past, what, like three quarters of a century, uh, suddenly, we've had the discovery of tons of other Pl other Pluto-sized objects, um, other just hundreds of thousands of asteroids. I think, or maybe I'm over exaggerating that. Is it hundreds well, of thousands, or is yeah, it like there's lots. I mean, like, someone said, I think it was Mike Brown, the Pluto killer, right? <laughs> I think he said, like, we're discovering like hundreds daily. Okay. So, I mean, the implication is pretty pretty big if you look at it that way. Yeah, and even like back then one of the things you documented Kenneth was the search for uh Pluto to begin with was initiated by what they thought at the time were uh like uh, irregularities in Neptune's orbit. Yeah, so there were perceived irregularities in Neptune's orbit. Um that's how they found Neptune because Uranus wasn't behaving quite normal and so then they find Neptune and they realize wait, that's not behaving the way we think it should. So there must be another planet, and then different mathematicians, and that's in the article, uh, they calculate where they think the orbit is going to be to find what becomes in the press like planet X, you mm -hmm. know, like and and that will now account for 
Neptune's irregularity. And then the irony is that after Pluto's discovered and science gets a little more sophisticated, we find out that Neptune's actually not misbehaving. Pluto is not impacting Neptune's orbit. Neptune's orbit is fine. So it's interesting that the whole search for Pluto arose out of a misperception about Neptune's nature, which right. may not have surprised astrologers, <laughs> right? right? Funny, and there's surprised. something else in your article that you also point out that I, I should be fair in, point, in talking about, because I, I talked about what astronomers are doing, but astrologers have been looking for Pluto for a while too. And when I say looking for Pluto, there actually was a planet, um, I forgot, Maurice Wemyss, yes, right? Yes, he yes. He also had a Pluto. Um, hypothetical a, a hypothetical planet. And so there was this whole gamut of astrologers who had hypothetical planets in mind, including like, for instance, um, those who are Star, Star Trek fans will recognize Vulcan. Vulcan was believed to to be out there somewhere, and we still haven't found Vulcan. So right. there's this search, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, that brings up a really interesting point, which is just for hundreds of years, for thousands of years, all astrologers had were the seven you know, quote unquote, seven traditional planets or seven uh, visible celestial bodies, which is the two luminaries, the sun and moon, which are just classified, let's just say for the sake of this, as a planet because it's uh, being used as a, as a celestial body in astrology. Yep. And then we had the five wandering stars, which are uh, Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn, which if you go out and you look at the night sky, you can actually see them. They look like twinkling uh, stars, just like any other fixed star, except what's weird about them is if you pay attention to them consecutively over the course of several nights or weeks or months, you'll see them moving against the backdrop yeah, of correct. the other stars. Yeah. And so that's what originally set them apart. And for centuries, that's all astrologers and astronomers knew about, and that's all we used. And then suddenly in the 18th century, there is this, this sudden discovery of Uranus. Right. And that's the very first outer planet that's discovered beyond Saturn, and suddenly that changes everything because it yeah. turns out that the solar system is not just limited to those seven traditional celestial bodies, but there may be other ones out there. Right. Then eventually they find Neptune, and then at that point we get into the stage that you guys are talking about where people are starting to realize there may be even more out there and we should start looking for them or even sometimes hypothesizing what they might be like or where they could be, and both astrologers and astronomers are engaging in that. And, so I'm sorry. Go on. Now I was just going to say, and what you just highlighted also brings up some political issues. You know that also is like embedded in that. I mean, one political issue was even just the discovery of Uranus, which was not called Uranus for I think, you know, <laughs> sixty or seventy years. It was like Herschel's star. Right. It was called mm -hmm. Herschel. Yeah, yeah. You know. So because, who was what? Was that like the king at the time? Well, no. he named it Georgium Sidus. Yeah. Okay. But the, the French were like, I'm not calling it that. After your king, I'm not doing that. Right. Right. Herschel was the discoverer. Right. William okay. Herschel yeah. was the discoverer. Yeah. Um. But the so that glyph. was. For just the glyph for Uranus preserves that H in Herschel. Right. Mm -hmm. That's hilarious. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, we have that and then still brings up other questions, like even in terms of the politics, Ceres, which was once classified as an asteroid, is now a dwarf planet like Pluto, was discovered before Pluto. But one thing that's interesting is that Ceres, who's bigger than Pluto, but named after a goddess, is not given the same credence and worth as Pluto. So mm -hmm. it's like all these different political dimensions that kind of nuance into it. Sure. 
And and the asteroids were discovered sometime like after, wasn't it after the discovery of like Neptune, but before the discovery of Pluto? Yes, that's what yes. I was. Mm -hmm. The primary, mm -hmm. like five big yeah. asteroids or something. That's correct. Yeah. Okay. So I want to take a little step back and just sort of set the stage in, in all this. Okay. Um, and you have astrologers practicing astrology. They The scientific revolution happens, heliocentrism uh, is discovered and astrology in the West kind of loses its bearings. I'm just giving a really quick history lesson right. here. And by the time um, Uranus is discovered, there's been a, a kind of loss of why things are the way they are in astrology. Why are there tradition? Why do we have these traditional rulerships? What's the rationale of that? Mm -hmm. And so you have Uranus and then Neptune. And so there's this... Um, desire of like well let's fit these new guys into the scheme you know maybe they have to since planets are like always rule things they must rule something rule mm -hmm. a sign um and then at the late 19th and early 20th century you have all this speculation about hypothetical points and you have the rise of uranian astrology um, in my article i talk about some uh, british astrologers that had hypothetical points that were according to the journals like in use by astrologers who were like experimenting to see like did they really exist so these one of the... which was called Pluto, but it had this hypothetical Pluto was way, way further out than our our Pluto. and the ruler of Virgo and the ruler of Virgo, according mm -hmm. to uh, Wymus, Wymus, yeah. or however you pronounce his name. So um, another f factor in all this was theosophy as a religion and and philosophy, a spiritual um, kind of a blending of Indian philosophy and some. Well, a blending of Indian philosophies and kind of adapted to a Western audience and this notion of uh, spiritual evolution. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a, kind of taking a Darwinism and applying it to the soul and having this evolution of the soul concept. There was this, th there was this belief, and I don't really get into it in the article, but that, uh, that we'd eventually find 12 planets and each planet would get to rule one house and there'd be this beautiful symmetry. So part of the rationale of like, well, why were they so desperately trying to figure out what house it rules was because of this notion of we're eventually going to get 12 and they all need to have their proper proper place. As a statement right. of our mm -hmm. evolution. Yeah, as a statement of our evolution, spiritual evolution, yeah. Well, mm -hmm. it's really funny that Uranus played that role and it, it broke up the traditional rulership system, which itself is so symmetrical and so beautiful. And that's one of the things that sometimes draws modern students of astrology back to traditional astrology once you see the symmetry underlying the original rulership scheme. Where it did it's it like, for me, yeah. Yeah, it's like you have the sun the sun and moon assigned to Cancer and Leo, and then all of the other planets are flanking out in zodiacal order based on the relative speed and distance from the sun, first to Mercury, then Venus, then Mars, then Jupiter, then Saturn. Saturn. But then you throw Uranus in, and if you take the assumption that it needs to be assigned to a sign, once you do that, it immediately starts breaking down all of those symmetries. So I can see then why there would immediately start being this assumption of, well, maybe there's more planets out yes. there that will eventually complete yes. and make it symmetrical again yes. by making 12 planets and 12 signs. Yes. Mm -hmm. You know, it's interesting to contrast this with the Indian tradition. You know, they were also aware of these plants being discovered. Uh, if you read um, books or let me phrase it this way. The books I have seen and read written in Indian English from the middle of the 20th century, they're still calling it Herschel. Okay. Um, 
and they may reference uh, Neptune and Herschel as planets, but it ne the the thought of making them rule something doesn't enter the mind because the rationale of why planets rule certain uh, signs is a is a consistent um, model in Indian astrology. It didn't have the breakup uh, or loss that it, we did in Western astrology. Mm -hmm. So you never find anyone, or at least I haven't found anyone like speculating, oh, we need to find a ruler for this because it didn't, didn't crop up. It crops up with us because we didn't understand, at the time, most astrologers didn't understand why things ruled what they rule. Well, and let's talk about that because actually I want to uh, talk about that premise and almost push back on that a little bit because one of the push. things I notice as a traditional astrologer, as a Hellenistic astrologer, I, I blend Hellenistic and modern astrology, is that part of the rationale for the original rulership scheme was the Thema Mundi, where you have a chart, this mythical birth chart for the birth of the cosmos, where it has Cancer rising and the moon is assigned to Cancer and the sun to, the, to Leo. And then Mercury gets to the next sign, which is Virgo. Then Venus gets to the next sign, which is Libra. Then Mars is Scorpio, and Jupiter is Sag, and Saturn is Capricorn, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so that's the starting point for the traditional rulership scheme. And the rest of the rulerships are just a mere image of that superimposed on the other signs. Um, but if you go back to the theme of Mundi and you start from the moon and then you work your way all the way out to the planets to Saturn and Capricorn. If another planet that was was discovered following that logic further out than Saturn, then it would be theoretically, if you're following that scheme, assigned to the next sign after Saturn, and that would be Aquarius. That's the next open sign after Capricorn. And then similarly, if there's another planet after that, if you're still following that scheme, um, the next open sign would be Pisces. So that would be Neptune, Neptune. the next mm -hmm. planet out. It's when you get to Pluto that this whole thing breaks down, though, and that's when you run into problems, and that's why. Um, you get into some of the debates over whether Pluto rules Scorpio or Aries, yes. which you documented were happening in the mid 20th century when yeah. astrologers were trying to assign Absolutely. it to a sign. Yeah. And I'm sure the Aries argument was partially based on that original sort of symmetry of just like following out from Cancer all the way around the zodiac. So, what do you, I mean, what are your thoughts about that in terms of at least for, let's say, for the sake of argument, just Uranus and Neptune? If that's part of the original rulership scheme, that's something I feel like traditional astrologers need to contend with. And I'm saying that as somebody where I only use the traditional rulership scheme at this point. So I don't assign Uranus to Aquarius or Neptune to Pisces or Pluto to you know Scorpio or Aries. But I, I see that as like a, sometimes a shortcoming in the logic sometimes of traditional astrologers when they try to criticize that system because I think some of the astrologers might have been following a certain sort of traditional logic, or at least extending that logic when they made some of those assignments originally. Uh, that could be. I mean, the, honestly, the thought that popped into my mind when you said that is, if we're going to embrace these notions that maybe we need to uh, kind of unbound ourselves from pure traditional thinking and think, okay, we find a new planet, maybe it does need to rule something, why are we not expanding the houses in the horoscope to accommodate these outer planets. I mean, life is getting more complicated. I could also make a philosophical argument that we need 14 houses instead of 12, 16 houses, and now every planet can rule two two signs because you're just you're as you go further out in the cosmos, maybe the wheel needs to get bigger. Now I'm not advocating that, but it seems like one could if they were to go down that road. Well, there, there's, there are other layers to that too, just to kind yes. of piggyback off of that, 
you know, one of the beauties of the Thema Mundi mm -hmm. is also the balance between the idea of the masculine and feminine. Not that I'm arguing right. for the binary, but I am saying that that is some aspect of it and that we got in terms of the duality, even between the lights, the sun and moon have their own duality, mm -hmm. but then every planet also gets to have that duality. And that gets lost with the introduction of the outers as rulers. Right. So with that, there's each traditional planet gets one masculine sign and one quote unquote feminine sign. That's correct. So that it almost like becomes balanced because then there's a realization that there's a masculine and a feminine expression of each planet. Right. Or we could say assertive and receptive if we don't want to get into gender bias. Yeah. Um, so I think that was one aspect of it. Then there's even a more profound question, which is what I often have brought up with more modern astrologers. Because the argument also comes up related to what you're saying is that, and what you were just saying, uh, Kenneth, is that, well, we're, we've evolved, we're changing. Uh, I mean, our culture um, in terms of civilization, and we need something that matches that. Which brings up the fundamental issue, is that true? Right. right. <laughs> yeah, I love that you were yes. laughing at that, Kenneth, because you were... You object to that, but at the same time, you were invoking that earlier as like a statement of an argument somebody could make. Mm -hmm. That's right, mm -hmm. but yeah. not an argument I would agree with because I think human beings are human beings, um, and I mean, the, the whole notion of how spiritual Darwinism got into astrology and New Age thought is probably a topic for another day because right. we could go down that rabbit hole, but um, yeah. Well, no, I mean, let's yeah. get into because that's it's important as a piece of like the cultural context of the practice of modern Western astrology and some mm -hmm. of the assumptions that modern Western, especially in the late 20th century, astrologers yeah. were making that they were using as justifications. And one of their justifications were that things are so radically different now than they were in ancient times that this is part of our justification for changing the system and for things changing because they would argue that life is so radically different now that. Um, you know, things change and their astrology should change. But the one of the traditionalist sort of counterpoints that's been coming up over the past 20 years, and one of the ones I've made, and both of you are making at this point as well, is that in point of fact, like the fundamentals of life are are still pretty similar to what they were 2000 years ago. And while a lot of like technology has changed, or sometimes there's been other superficial changes. The in terms of like the the twelve houses, for example, the fundamentals of life are still the same. You have health, yeah. uh, wealth, siblings, parents, children, illness, um, relationships, or, or, right? Relationships, relationships. Yeah. Uh, government, mortality, mm -hmm. travel or religion, career, friends, and and enemies or laws, mm -hmm. and that's like pretty universal. Mm -hmm. So Correct. those things haven't necessarily changed. I mean, and yet. The way we practice, even us traditionalists, and I, for those of you who don't know, uh, do a, try to do a kind of traditional Indian astrology, um, we've adapted it to modern times and right. to modern life and circumstance. And uh, I mean, mm -hmm. we, the fact is we are adapting and changing and, and astrology always has to adapt to the culture and the day that it finds itself in. Mm -hmm. And um, my... So I studied Western astrology as a kid and teenager and young adult before I found Indian. And one of my Western astrologers, you know, what he taught about the outer planets, all three of them, Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto, is that they had to find a way into your life through your chart by connecting to one of the traditional planets. You know, so if you had Pluto conjunct your moon or, you know, Pluto conjunct 
or trying Saturn or something like that, then that outer planet has found a way. It's kind of dialed in to the energy of the chart or however you want to conceptualize the chart. But if you, if a native had an outer planet that didn't really configure with anything else, then probably it wasn't going to have much of an effect mm-hmm. because there is, we, what we haven't talked about is the natural boundary of what you can see with the unaided human eye, right. which is Saturn. So another argument is, is that, hey, the light you can see ends with Saturn. And that's another traditionalist argument. I mean, and, and that's a really important argument, especially in the context of of ancient the way that ancient astrology was conceptualized as a form of divination, because in divination, that which like appears or that which is visible to the senses or perceptible is the thing that matters. And if something is hidden, then that either is is not taken into account or the fact that it's hidden is an additional symbolic factor right. in and of mm-hmm. itself. Right. Well, um, just to kind of also dive in with that i mean that is an argument that some modern astrologers make by the fact that the outers are hidden it kind of belies the fact that that symbolizes and this is the language that they've also learned to use from i guess jung also from theosophy that this also highlights a particular kind of change in our consciousness our collective unconscious um what is uh i guess What's the word? Trans uh, transpersonal. Transpersonal. Yeah, the transpersonal planets. Mm-hmm. Transpersonal. Um, yeah. going beyond you know the dimensions of how we just interact in our own kind of cubby holes, mm-hmm. right? So that's one thing that does support their argument that it's it's beyond what we can see. Right, mm-hmm. and it's like I'm always sympathetic to that. But Lisa, we were talking about this earlier today. I want to bring you into this. I kind of dragged you into this conversation, yeah, yeah. so I'm sorry. Yeah, because we're all the history geeks. Like Kenneth, <laughs> Kenneth, and I went to Kepler, Kepler College, Kepler College uh-huh. and, and you are now the president. I've heard of Kepler College. True rumors. Con- true. Congratulations! You're <laughs> also you. one of the few people in the world that graduated from Kepler with a master's degree. Uh, one of five, I believe. Mm. Yes, five. <laughs> wow. Okay. Um, yeah. and Sam, like you've done also a lot of research into the history mm-hmm. of astrology. And that's something that's really like bringing that almost like academic interest into and that historical, not just historical, but also studying the the cultural backdrop and the cultural context of astrology is something that's very important to you. Um, uh, But Lisa, you are somebody over the past 10 years where you've made the transition, not just like from modern astrology to traditional astrology, but you've merged and synthesized like modern contemporary Western astrology with some ancient like Hellenistic and other types of traditional astrology. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes you've had to weigh and balance some of those different um, ideas, which sometimes astrologers put forward. And one of them is that idea that maybe the outer planets only are relevant if they're like closely configured to a, a, a visible planet or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's where you get into like theory versus practice for me personally, mm-hmm. because that's actually not what I see in practice. Yeah. Like I see them matter, not necessarily more than other planets, but I see them matter wherever they're placed. Um, and so, yeah, I think a lot of the history of outer planet discussions within the community has been theoretical and has been like, I have this idea about how this should work. And so anyway, that's that, that would so be what I'm, I say I'm glad you that. brought that up because the crux of my article, which I don't think is clear to the people watching so far, is I do take you at your word that they matter and mm-hmm. they may not be the most important, but Pluto is a big force no matter where it is in the chart. When you look at the history of Pluto in astrology, you have many astrologers 
in the mid and early and even late 20th century, and actually uh, recently, um, what was her name? Anyway, prominent astrologers recently passed away saying that it doesn't always manifest. It's it's very it's very confusing. It, we mm-hmm. need to study it more. And the, one of the one of the question no, one of the the one who wrote a uh, plain vanilla astrologer, oh. Pam Pam Geisler. Yes, yeah. yeah. So I have a quote from her in here where she's like, "Hey, I've been looking at Pluto for you know sixty years, and it's a weird little thing that I can't you know rely on." That goes against the younger or. Uh, 21st century astrologer who will say like what are you guys talking about like how mm-hmm. can you not notice the transits of these things they're like mm-hmm. so heavy they happen all the time mm-hmm. so one of my questions is how do we account for the fact that it seems so obvious today and yet in yesteryear a lot of people were saying it didn't even have an effect mm-hmm. um and that's one of the mysteries that i try to explore in the paper <laughs> Yeah, and one of the comments that you wrote in our outline is you said, I don't think this was in the article, but you you wrote the question, you said, if you examine 10 medical textbooks or ask 10 physicians to describe the function of the liver, you'll probably get very similar answers. But when I, Kenneth, ask astrologers about the function of Pluto, I get answers that are all over the place. Even today, yes. Yeah, same with written works. What does this say about astrology as a practice? And see, I think the question you put at the end there is you make it really broad because I think one counterpoint that I would make is, is this true for other outer planets like Uranus and Neptune? Because I don't think it's as true for Uranus and Neptune where I think astrologers are more on the same page about what their meanings are and they're pretty well defined or you know, even with Neptune to the extent that it's like not well defined, <laughs> right. that is the definition. Right. But with Pluto, it's been yeah. much more all over the place. And that probably has to do more though with the cultural context of like radical shifts in astrology and its conceptualization over the past decade, perhaps, um, or, or other things than it has to do with like a broader issue with astrology per se. Yeah. I mean, do you do you honestly feel though that there are it's more across the board compared to say like a multivalent like read of like any other planet in terms of it can express in different ways or I it mean, can symbolize different things? I'm well now we're just gonna guess, right? Because <laughs> we'd have to actually I'd have to actually interview people. But when I interviewed contemporary astrologers about Pluto, which, mm-hmm. a few of which I quote here, um, you just get pretty, they'll all say it has a big effect, mm. but they'll define it, what that effect is or or what its influences pretty differently. Sure. And maybe we do do that for all the plants. I, I don't know the answer, but I would mm-hmm. guess if you asked about Venus, you'd get a much more consistent sure. list of keywords mm-hmm. than you would for Pluto. True, although there's still different ways it can manifest or it can symbolize a list of different things and not just one thing. So that's just like a counterpoint yeah, I was I, thinking of. Yeah, I actually would tend to agree with what you're saying. I mean, I think that there is more of a, there can be a consistency. Um, but even with that consistency, it can be even a, a certain kind of vagueness. Now, the word that really gets under my skin with Pluto, I even tell my students, like, when they use it in my class, just know that I'm going to challenge you on it, is transformation, right? Mm-hmm. That's the word that gets bandied about, I think, pretty consistently if we kind of go through some of the books with astrology, you know, on Pluto. I think Michael Luton calls Pluto the butterfly planet because it's the caterpillar. Yeah, the chrysalis and going going into that. And I think my problem with that, you know, not beyond it being associated with Scorpio in the eighth house, is that it's a really vague term, you Mm -hmm. know, because 
the whole charge is the statement of transformation, arguably. And when you say transformation, I think what people are talking about specifically with Pluto is really kind of more a crisis mm-hmm. that that actually um, incites what could become a transformation. Right. So I think it's more crisis. Right. right? Except like no one a, wants to say that to clients. It's a so. euphemism. <laughs> You're having that crisis right. transit but coming up. That, but that, that transformation word does an injustice, I think, to what they're trying to say. Because when you say transformation, it's kind of like, well, okay, that sounds really cool, but what does that really mean? Because I'm one of those clients, you know, when I am a client, like, yeah, yeah, yeah okay. Yeah. Give me something specific, something I can hold on to. Transformation sure. is not a word that really... Well, that, to me. and that has to do with the broader issue in like late twentieth century of like using euphemisms so as to not freak out clients, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. even mm-hmm. though they're partially getting that because they're associating Pluto with Scorpio and Scorpio with the eighth house, which is traditionally associated with death. Right. No, all crisis. Not all crisis has to be like bad. You know, even that kind of that mistranslation. You know, of a Chinese saying like crisis means opportunity, right? I mean, it can also mean the idea of a crisis, something that you're going with that leads to a change in your thinking, mm-hmm. right? Um, a growth in your your, your thought process. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it doesn't have to always be, because I don't always find, per what we were talking about in the car, I don't find Pluto always a consistent manifester in terms of like yeah. correlative to a particular event. Right. I, I mean, and that, but that in and of itself is an issue then, and that's an issue you were bringing up, Kenneth, is... That some of the astrologers, like one of the things you documented, was that there was this phase from like 1930 until almost the 19 early 1970s when astrologers mid 70s where astrologers are much more ambiguous and much more. Some of them were like it. Sometimes they don't know what it means at all, or that it it doesn't always manifest in all charts, or and they're still arguing like what sign is it associated with? And Mm -hmm. again, I want to be clear: I'm not anti Pluto. I'm just raising the question. What puzzles me is that you have that experience of it being this definite reality. How could anyone mm-hmm. have like questioned it or found it to be like weirdly mm-hmm. relevant in only a few charts? Uh, Isabel Hickey, and I think 1970. This is where I get the the dumb note uh, quote, and I'm going to misquote her, but it's in the in the thing. But she says, you know, I've been looking at Pluto since its discovery, and uh, in some charts, it doesn't. Um, it's like a dumb note. It doesn't. It doesn't have any effect. Mm-hmm. I think it. And then she goes on to say that I think it really only resonates for people who are like spiritually evolved right. or spiritually sophisticated. So any person reading that book in 1970 is going to be like, "Well, I'm one of those people," right. and now they're going to be thinking, "I'm going to, you know, Pluto's going to work work for me." Mm-hmm. And then you have Robert Hand's classic Planet in Transit. I really believe. That book is kind of the epicenter that kind of starts pulling everyone towards the same kind of Pluto understanding, mm-hmm. right? right. That's just because six it's just the best. And, that's and six, years, six later. years later, it's a bestseller. It's still a bestseller today. Mm. Uh, everyone has it. It's still big, influential. But even with that book, again, you interview contemporary astrologers, you get quite a wide variety of of things about about Pluto. And I would. It feels like it's more with Pluto than other planets, and I just think it's an interesting thing to explore and to try mm-hmm. to account for that. I mean, have we mm-hmm. created something? I mean, this gets into what is astrology? How did these things affect us? Is it a force? Is it a symbol? Is it a clock just telling us what's happening? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you know, yeah. It, ra- it it raises all these great questions right. for us to grapple Definitely. with, and especially 
Pluto, I think, did that as well because, I mean, we're still, even yeah. after, I mean, what, when was it, 2005 when it got demoted? Yeah, um, five, six, six, one 2006. Of those, yeah. One of those, yeah. So, I mean, in terms of its demotion and what that means, and I, I, you know, one basic thing that we might start off with in terms of, you know, I have a question for astrologers. Like I always say to my students, and then also, um, even when I get on Twitter, is if I ever went to the dark side, right, and became like an anti-astrologer, like at wait, one there's point, a dark side. Yes, of course. <laughs> there's always the dark side, right? Um, yes. If I ever went to the dark side, I became like an anti-astrologer. You know, I, I have particular things I know I would attack, but one of the things I know I would attack is I would ask an astrologer, maybe I'd come, I'll come to you, Chris, right? I, I love that think, you're like thinking this out as a Scorpio, like you're thinking <laughs> out, like, right? what are the weaknesses? Not the well, yeah, this is what we do. Right? But, so one thing I might come to you is like, so what's a planet in astrology, right? And I don't know if we have a really good answer, mm -hmm. you know? So like, yeah, Pluto got demoted. So what does that mean for you as astrologers? Because you call it a planet, but it's not like technically. Well, the response is, has been like nothing because astrologers right. weren't involved in that decision. That's true. We weren't, but that's that's more disciplinary issue, but, right? In terms of the discipline. But like, why is that a planet and say like, um, what's it, Hakumea? Um, or uh, Quayor, you know, in yeah. terms of, you mm -hmm. know. So, Sedna. Sedna, mm -hmm. right? So. Well, see, this is where I find astrologers there are some astrologers who will say that the discovery of pluto was timely and that somehow that in itself mm -hmm. um is a is a metaphorical happening that has astrological significance right mm -hmm. i mean that you've heard that I'm yeah not like just the historical things yes. happening around the same time and yeah. yet they don't apply that same reasoning to Pluto's demotion. Because one of the things I raise in my article is, are the children born post-2006, are they going to experience a different kind of Pluto because the culture has changed the signification of Pluto? Hmm. So if you're an astrologer who believes in the cultural attribution of you know, powers to these planets or whatever, then it puzzles me why no one is taking into account the the latest science. And that and is the history yeah. of the outer planets, because yeah. one of the because one of the things I know we want to talk about are significations. So yeah. in terms of how Uranus gets a signification, it's like, well, it also comes around the time that we were discovering electricity yeah. and these revolutions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Not acknowledging like, okay, so um, Uranus is discovered at this particular time, but the revolutions happened before. Same thing with Pluto, where people say like it's dealing with radiation and things related to nuclear yep. changes. And I'm like, well, that also was in motion. You said that even in your article. Yeah. That's in motion at least eight years before yeah. and also even yeah. sometime after. Yeah. So it always gets fuzzy in terms of how we time our changes in human history right. mm -hmm. related to the significations that we now right. attribute to the planets. Mm -hmm. right. Yeah, and I realized that was, did you want to say something? Um, no, I was just going to say, I mean, but that's only one piece of, you know, how the meanings get their meanings, right? And it's, so it's like historical events is like one take on that. And then mythology is another take on that. Yep. And then looking at it empirically or looking at charts in front of yep. you is another one. And I was actually impressed in your article with the CEO Carter in 1931. Yes. Yeah. That was one year after it was discovered. Yeah. And, you know, supposedly that was based on looking at his own chart. Yeah. Um, I didn't know if you had more background on that, but I was actually impressed by those four lines in there. They were pretty on target one year after discovery, you know. So I think there is something to be said for like he was looking supposedly at charts and and then. Yeah, a lot of people were looking at charts and the, the beauty of this art, 
the article quotes all kinds of astrology. So if you're looking for like keywords and approaches of Pluto, one of the one of the services I've done with this is I've pulled it all together from mm -hmm. an insane amount of sources. Right. The only one you didn't cite that I, I was missing was Tarnas because Tarnas has that like huge paragraph. The next version, one. the next version will have Tarnas in it. Okay, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I might, might want to pull that out though, just to um, center this discussion at some point because I think he does yeah. a good job mm -hmm. of summarizing what most astrologers could get on board with as the basic significations of the three outer planets. Um, but uh, Sam, in terms of the empirical things, that was one of the argu not arguments, but like debates you and I had at one point because you were questioning. How much astrologers were developing the significations of the outer planets based on empirical considerations and actually looking at it in charts and looking at like a transit of an outer planet to a natal planet and then seeing something happen and then, you know, developing or, or drawing conclusions from that versus you were arguing that they may have put too much emphasis on other considerations like mythology or stuff like that, mm -hmm. right? Yes. Yeah. And then, and then, uh, and then my, I don't know if you want to expand on that anymore, but my counterpoint to that was I had always read in Patrick Curry's, I think it's Patrick Curry's book, A Confusion of Prophets. He has this great story about the astrologer John Varley from yes. like the 18th century, who was a painter and also an astrologer. And it's like this great story about him seeing this Uranus transit coming up in his chart. And he developed from looking at it in charts this general idea of like unexpected disruptions or happenings. Taking place, and he was pretty sure on this specific day that something specific was going to happen with Uranus, and then um, his house. Yeah, right at the the appointed hour, the appointed hour comes, and then his house catches on fire, and he's so excited that he goes outside and begins like furiously scribbling down his notes. And somebody comes up and asks, "What are you doing? Your house is on fire. You need to put it out." And he he just ignores it and lets his house burn <laughs> down uh, because he's so. Amazed that he's been able to confirm empirically the meaning of this newly discovered outer planet. Mm -hmm. And that to me was always because that is a funny story. It's like always been a funny anecdote, but it's also so relatable because I think a lot of astrologers get in that zone. Uh, we joke about it, I think, sometimes on Twitter that it's like astrologer good um, mm -hmm. when something just like terrible happens in your life, but you're so impressed by the astrology <laughs> that you're almost like okay with it because yeah. the astrology is is matching. So well that it almost like makes it worthwhile, whatever terrible thing you're going through at that time. Well, yeah, I don't um, think. Yeah, I was just gonna say uh, Andrea Gertz has a great um, quote, which it's called "Therapeutic Blaming of the Planets." Okay, you know, so sometimes like a misfortune happens, but you can see it in the chart, and and it, it, that will often give you a little bit of distance to then start actually. Uh, Emotionally handling the yeah, thing, dealing, and dealing with, with it by therapeutically quote blaming the planets uh, sure. for the for the misfortune. Yeah, I don't know if I ever took complete issue with the empirical or the experiential dimension of it, the anecdotal. Because okay. I know the Varley quote. I'm also knowing it's also in Holden's book, mm -hmm. um, History of Horoscopic Astrology. Yeah. Um, so I mean, I know the Varley story, and um, I also have like a funny Neptune. Um, story to, to share. I mean, I mean, I probably can't read all of this, but um, it was actually, I was talking to Ken about how Neptune went through multiple iterations of near discovery, mm. only like for people who ignored it, you know, each time to finally it was discovered. And then within hours, like it's right there in the sky. So that's very Neptunian. So I, I, I acknowledge that, but I always had this vision before I started doing the research on outer planets that astrologers got together, had like these 
this conclave, right? Mm-hmm. That word again, right? And they had this meeting, and then they got compared notes, right? And then said together, like, "Well, thus it must mean this," right? Where mm-hmm. it was like much more like like yeah. a committee, and like everybody yeah. was on the same page, <laughs> right? And it was much more like yeah. scientific. That never happened. No, yeah. it never happened. It's more haphazard than right. That. Yeah. So that's kind of what you know. I think. You know, and we also see, like you were recounting with Pluto, but you also can see this with Uranus, you can see it with Neptune, how we've taken like these histories of, of meanings and associations that really, when put to scrutiny, you know, like especially with Uranus, are challenging. You know, like what I mentioned in terms of electricity and revolutions, and even the name which Tarnus also talks about. Mm-hmm. You know, Uranus doesn't fit the idea of sudden change and revolution at all. Uranus ends up I know this is a family the, show, but the Uranus, mythology of Uranus. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. Uranus or, or Uranus. Uranus ends up with his testicles cut off into the sea, which gives us Venus, and he's deposed by his his son, Saturn, who actually is more the real revolutionary. So, I mean, that's fascinating in terms of how we come to associate Uranus as revolution, even in the tie to the mythology. So, there is like the question with mythology. There is the question of the, the experiential and how it matches up. But then we have all the other things in terms of how we kind of connect additional meanings to the to the outer planets, which may or may not really hold up, you know. So that's the question. Sure. Mm. Yeah. And with all these specific meanings, like over time, I mean, I think about people doing research into the newer bodies now and how long it can take to really coalesce around like this is definitely expressing in this certain way. And then you have, I mean, I don't want to sound rude, but as you mentioned, it's not an organized committee. And so you have just like this haphazard, like random people doing this. And they're probably of different quality of researchers, right? Mm -hmm. You know, and some of them are probably foregrounding more empiricism and some of them are probably foregrounding more their preconceived ideas about what it should be or the mythology or their particular spiritual philosophy, you know? And so... I don't know that just having a history of like decades of like this being all over the place is necessarily to me anyway, like argue argues for like there not being a true meaning for Pluto or a true group meaning group of meanings for Pluto just because of a whole bunch of people like maybe didn't have it the way we think of it now. Um, and I wouldn't make that argument. Uh-huh. I, 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 I wouldn't make that argument. But what which, I will make argument? is which argument just articulate it really quick. I didn't follow uh, that because it, Pluto's been all over the place, that doesn't mean that it doesn't have a any, firm any, set of Okay, so that's yeah. not your argument. Yeah. yeah, no, I'm not arguing that at all. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm arguing it, assuming you're right, mm-hmm. how do we account for all these people that were all over the place, even though they were much more experienced than we were and we're, and we're seeing hundreds of clients over, over time. Right. So anyway, that's, yeah. just the, that's just the question to explore. The other thing is what we never get into in astrology hardly ever is kind of the philosophy of science mm-hmm. and what's going on. You know, in other words, if I am taught that Jupiter is a great benefic and I'm like, as I'm seeing clients, I'm like, wait, it doesn't always do good things. And sometimes, <laughs> wow, sometimes it brings cancer. Yeah. Okay, it's a great benefic, but it does occasionally do bad things. If I teach you, yeah, Pluto's this really bad thing, start looking for it in charts. Now, because of Pluto's slow movement, what you're going to fish for in your mind is all the horrible things, horrible things, crises, mm-hmm. transformation, you know, whatever you want to do it. If you taught as an experiment, 
like someone who doesn't know anything about astrology. Yeah, Pluto is this like what brings wonderful opportunity. Go through all these biographies and see what you can find. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering what we would find. Yeah, that's I mean, you know, that's because kind of we have our blinders when we learn this stuff and definitely. now we just start to look for confirmation. Yeah, that's kind of what I mean, you know, like what are yeah. people really foregrounding when they're doing this yeah. research and how good are they at doing research and really focusing in on what they're seeing versus what they're thinking about beforehand. Right. Yeah. And that's a really great point that you bring up because that's right there we should probably put that at the top of the list of because I agree with one of your basic premises, which at least to me, I would, the way I would frame it is that Uranus and Neptune, their significations in astrological literature seem more consistent to me compared to Pluto over the past century. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and Pluto seems a little bit more all over the place um, to some extent compared mm-hmm. to the other two. Mm-hmm. And then question of why that is or what are some possibilities. And one of them that you just mentioned that's really interesting that I never thought of is that because Pluto is so much slower compared to the other planets mm-hmm. um, that when people are trying to like um, look at follow it or try to test it empirically by transit, they are going to be picking up far more events and having to sift through far more events because its transits are so slow compared to some of those other planets. Definitely. Another thing uh, that I just remembered is that it wasn't quite settled about Neptune, at least its rulership. So before Pluto's discovery, at least in the in the British journals I had access to, they were debating where to put Neptune. Like we all think, like oh, in modern times, you put you know if you use modern rulerships, you throw it with Pisces. But there was a fierce debate going on. But as soon as Pluto's discovered, it's kind of like we don't have time for that anymore. We got this other thing mm-hmm. <laughs> to deal with, and it's really weird. It almost like the conversations about Neptune just vanished from the from from the <laughs> literature. I mean, I don't know what was happening in the clubs and stuff, but. At least in the literature, it it appears to have just like, we got more pressing problems now at Pluto. Sure. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the other thing that changed in terms of between the timeframes of when Uranus was discovered and Neptune was discovered and astrologers trying to figure those out is by the time we get to Pluto, we're already like firmly in almost like mid 20th century astrology. And some of the major changes that came along with that, the the most important of which I think is going to be Alan Leo and the adoption and mm-hmm. the integration of the twelve-letter alphabet, or like what's the other name for? It? There's other names for it, but the idea of equating the astrological like, alphabet, mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. like Aries equals first Mars equals, equals the Mars. first house, mm-hmm. or um, in this case, uh, Pluto equals Scorpio equals the eighth house, and then starting to interchange the significations between those. And as immediately once you start doing that, you see a lot of the astrologers in your article that you're citing, Kenneth, drawing significations from the eighth house or drawing traditional significations from Scorpio and applying them to Pluto. Yep. Mm-hmm. So that's almost like a new conceptual structure then that might partially explain how it happened. Some of what was happening, at least, or at least an, an element that was different when they started trying to figure Pluto out compared to when Uranus and Neptune were, were discovered initially. Mm-hmm. So that brings up. Lots of philosophical issues, but one thing related to what you're talking about, Kenneth, in your article, but what you also just said, and you know, I've been looking, um, reading a an author who I think has been very much influenced by seven thought from the seventies and the eighties, and um, how she actually did her delineation that t- tapped into Pluto in the eighth house, and mm. I think she also looked at Mars and Aries related to the first house. Here's a question I, I often wonder about. Different methodology than we might use as more traditionally influenced astrologers, and especially in terms of the Vedic tradition, 
was she wrong? I mean, she didn't, I mean, she got the right delineation in a very different means. What does that mean in terms of how we do astrology? Was she wrong? What do you mean to explain well, it again? Meaning, meaning that when someone talks about, well, you're like this because I'm looking at <laughs> Pluto in your, your eighth house and it's this and that related to the significations of the eighth house. Okay. Collapsing those and then collapsing that with Pluto mm-hmm. or looking at Pluto in your first house which is drawing on significations of the eighth house right. and then additional things. Like, so for instance, I'll go with something that we can see with some modern astrologers. Well, you got Pluto in the first house. You're really sexy. Now for a traditional astrologer, you go like, where'd that come from? <laughs> How'd you get that? Right. Right. Yeah. I think I'm, you know, most people are going to say, yeah, I'm sexy. I'm too sexy <laughs> for my shirt. But how'd you know that? Now, that could be any number of factors, right? Right, that we would look at, like fifth house, Venus, whatever. So I, that's what I mean, you know, like how we now have gotten these associations and these combinations that really have changed the landscape of it. And I used to be of that mindset, and you know, we used to talk about that in MySpace days, and then a little bit in, on Facebook. Well, that's just wrong. I think I'm softening in that, not going like, oh, that's wrong, as much as like, well. It gets confusing. That's all I say now. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's all. I mean, sure. It's, yeah, it's those those nuances of now how we're using it with these combined associations, as you're saying. Right. Um, so I'm trying to think about uh, there. There were some other like basic things we needed to touch on. One of them just to circle back to the historical discussion because I meant to get that out of the way first <laughs> because you had done such a good job of documenting it in your article, but mm-hmm. you showed how there was much more. Things were much more all over the place in terms of Pluto's significations up until the mid 1970s, and then after the mid 1970s, it all just like collapses really quickly, and astrologers yeah. get more or less on the same page pretty fast. Yep. And at the epicenter of that, of course, seems to be Rob Hand's seminal book, Planets in Transit. Yes. And what year was that published again? 1976. 76. And because I was wondering, like a few years ago, I was trying to remember. I was trying to think, like, why is Rob Hand so popular in the astrological community today, where he is at least within astrological circles, like not necessarily outside of the astrological community, where you might point to somebody else like Linda Goodman or like Susan Miller or somebody like that that's more well known for doing horoscopes or sun signs or something. But within the astrological community, for the past three or four decades, like Rob Hand has been, is often looked up to as one of, if not the leading astrologer in the, well, in the world. Well, he's also the astrological zealot, right? If you're familiar with that movie, it's a Woody Allen movie where it's about this character who kind of has like been throughout different periods of history mm-hmm. that we see. And Rob really does capture that. And how does he do that? Because he's the only astrologer I know who's kind of gone, speaking of transformation, through so many multiple transformations in his work. I mean, the only other person who I can think as comparable is is Demetra, mm-hmm. right? In terms of how she's also made different transitions. But I mean he's done cosmobiology. He's done huh? Demetra George for those listening at yeah, home. Right, right. Like, <laughs> you know, like, well, yeah, right. Yeah, we are on the first name basis with them, but it's right. not like everyone else's but you know, the we'll, name dropping we'll, we'll show. just say Dr. Hand yeah, right. Dr. Hand. Yeah. Um but you know if you if you look at his career, you know, he really has gone he, he's really like almost like the penultimate modern astrologer in that sense, going from you know, being cosmobiology to some point, to do, dealing, dealing with midpoints, 
to dealing with just like how we deal with aspects until he also now went into looking at Hellenistic astrology, traditional medieval astrology. Mm. He's kind of done the whole swath mm-hmm. of the 20th century in miniature. Right. But and, I was like, I was trying to figure out why his perception was so big, because even my perception of him was- You mean from that particular moment? Of just like a few years ago, like maybe not as much to some extent now. He's become a little bit less active. He hasn't been going to conferences for a few years now, but- Definitely, like when I came into the community like 10 years ago, it's like Rob Han was like the guy. And I was wondering, like, why was that at some point? And I realized at some point that Planets in Transit was probably a large part of the reason. Mm-hmm. I think there's a couple of reasons, maybe three I can think of off the top of my hand. One okay. is the cookbook style of Planets in Transit made it accessible, accessible to even the beginning astrologer. Mm-hmm. Second, it was written with some psychological sophistication of the time. Right. He's a second generation astrologer. His father was an astrologer. And he's one who wasn't afraid to change his ideas. Like if you buy some of his early books of essays, he now practically disagrees with almost every one of those because he's grown as an astrologer. Right. And he's also been a consulting astrologer, seeing clients over decades. And right. many of us, many of us, um, Many teachers of astrology seem to like stop seeing clients when they start teaching and or they don't see as many and then there can kind of can, be, can become a disconnect between what you're teaching and what actually works in the real world. And I've right. seen mm-hmm. this happen to teachers. Mm-hmm. But with Rob, he always had his hand in seeing clients. And Rob is one of the very few astrologers, you know, every professional astrologer, someone will say, oh yeah, I got a reading from so-and-so. Wasn't that great? You know, you think, but Ra, everyone I've ever met who's gotten a reading from Rob Hand was like, it was helpful. It was insightful. He like, you know, knew his stuff, sure. including me, yeah, including mm-hmm. me. So, mm-hmm. um, so I think all of those things about his character has made him this. And when, when, when he does go to these big conferences, he often does a workshop called Problem Charts or something mm-hmm. like yeah. that. Dealing with, difficult, dealing with difficult chart yeah. combinations. Yeah. And he'll just throw up audience charts, examples, blah, 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 and and he just has a finesse with it from all those decades of experience. So I think all of that, and he's yeah. quite accessible, even though yeah. you know, he's really smart and famous, yeah. he's happy to talk to you. Yeah, yeah I mean, I mean, he's yeah. accessible and he knows like the history of astrology really well, yes. and he gives like an amazing like keynote lecture that's always really inspiring. Yes. Mm-hmm. What are you saying? I was just going to say, and yeah. I agree with all of those yeah. things you said. In addition, I just think he thinks more deeply about the topic than many people do, of you know, course. and then he expresses yes. it well. Yes. So I don't, I, I mean, not to say that no one else thinks about it deeply, but I think he he keeps it at like a higher level, but then makes that accessible. Yes. And that's pretty unique. Yeah, yeah. sure. So, but I, I feel like- The Rob like, Han tribute show. Right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we love you, Rob. Any disagreements? Right. That's right. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I think a large part of his start, his first book was actually Planets and Composite, I think, if I remember correctly. Was that first? I think he actually got started with Planets uh, and Composite first. I don't think we have a copy or we have Planets in Transit. Hmm. Um, but uh, the Planets in Transit, though, because everybody, it became a staple of everybody's library and everybody could read it as one of the first really accessible but also comprehensive books about just looking up your transits on a daily day basis. And his delineations were really good. Mm-hmm. That became a staple of everyone's library. And that's continued over into subsequent generations in the past two decades because Astro.com incorporated planets in transit into their personal daily horoscope. Oh, fascinating. Mm-hmm. And in 2000, like like from like, you know, when I got into astrology in 1999 through 2000, that was one of the first resources I found 
because they have the free chart calculator and everybody for the past two decades that's gotten into astrology relies on astro.com primarily for you know reliable charts and the fact that they also use planets in transit in their personal daily horoscope means that the whole this whole other generation or two of astrologers have gotten started with Rob Hand's delineations. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of continued and perpetuated that. Um, but what was interesting, what you, you wrote, Kenneth, is that from the 1970s onward, that generation of astrologers that probably came in in the 1960s and 70s, things really start getting collapsed down in terms of the interpretations of Pluto, and that Rob's delineations in Planets and Transit could have played a significant role in that because of the popularity of that book. Yeah, that's mm -hmm. my, my guess. Well, and it stayed in in um, print, right? Yeah, it's been in print today. I mean, that's a huge factor because well. <laughs> most astrology books don't for right. very long. And he right. actually said that he's he's almost finished or nearly finished with a new edition of it, which is interesting because he's also said that there are things that he said in that book that he wouldn't say now. Mm -hmm. right. That would be completely different. Well, he was a young man. I mean, like yeah, yeah. So I mean, yeah. that's just a statement yeah. to his evolution, right, and his growth. So or his sure. growth. So that being the case, so historically to wrap up the historical portion from the 1970s onward, Western astrologers start largely getting on the same page and you start seeing a lot of similarity in the way that they're talking about. Right. And rulership of Aries disappears. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. So it all just becomes Pluto assigned to Scorpio, Pluto's connection with the eighth house and Scorpio. Mm -hmm. And that in and of itself, I'm sure once you get on the same page about that is just going to reinforce and help to standardize a lot of the significations to some extent. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, death, sex, uh, whatever other- Regeneration. Yeah, transformation. Mm -hmm. um, I'm sure there's other things like I'm thinking of like Stephen Arroyo's book. What is it? Astrology, Karma, and Transformation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Probably contribute things to that as Jeffrey well. Jeffrey Wolf Green, who you didn't really talk about in your article, which I, I, I mentioned and that to him. Yeah, I was surprised about Forrest. that as well. Yeah, Stephen Forrest. Yeah, he did. Jeffrey Wolf. Yeah. Kenneth mentioned it. Um, because that's so, so astrologers start getting, and that's all that generation that came in in Word like the count. 1960s and 70s, mm -hmm. which are like the Pluto and Leo generation, if we were to break things up by. Pluto generations, which is a common thing that's done in the astrological community, um, I think it's that generation that's getting on the same page from the 1960s and 70s forward, who originally came in when they were in their like 20s and 30s, who were largely born in the 1940s, like Rob was. Um, and yeah, so you get more standardization. You get the standardization of late 20th century astrology because it's not just Pluto, but also just like what modern astrology is became much more. Standardized in terms of like modern psychological astrology in the late towards the late twentieth century by the nineteen eighties or so, um, yeah. So there, there's a lot of things going on just in terms of things getting smoothed out a little bit by that point, and then you also start getting some extreme sort of areas where Pluto isn't just like this new thing, but becomes like the focal point of their system, and that's. Been a more recent develop in the past development of the past two or three decades, like in the evolutionary astrology community mm -hmm. and the work of Jeffrey Wolf Green, where they start putting a ton of uh, or putting a ton of meaning onto Pluto. He has two books on it, mm -hmm. right? Um, and says that Pluto is like the soul, and that's like one of their primary like tenets as evolutionary astrologers. Uh, I call that development like that almost goes. Really far to something I almost call the fetishization of Pluto, which is just taking a single object, which different traditions have a propensity to do from time to time, 
and just like keeping a ton of stuff on that specific point so that it doesn't become the only thing they're focused on, but it becomes the center point in, in some way for some traditions. Other traditions have things like uh, the nodes, for example. Some traditions, even of evolutionary astrology, the thing, yeah. like mm-hmm. the Stevens school tends to focus more on the nodes, I would say, than Pluto, whereas the Jeff school focuses more on Pluto. You've got other astrological traditions like the- Chiron? Yeah, Chiron's the a Chiron big one. tradition. Mm-hmm. Sure. I'm trying to think of some traditional By the ones. way, it's not in the article, but when I lecture on this topic, another weird thing that happens is Chiron's discovery. And uh, I- wish I remembered Chiron's chart, but I looked at where I was like, that's weird. Pluto's significations kind of collapse at around the time Chiron's discovered. And so I looked at where Pluto was in the Chiron discovery chart. And I remember that being very interesting. Unfortunately, I can't remember the chart, but we can all look at it tonight uh, and and look at it there. Um, Because that was in 77, I believe. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Um, So there's... So we sort of wrapped up the history, but one of your points then is even though astrologers are more on the same page in the past, let's say two to three decades about Pluto, there's still, compared to other planets, you feel like a certain degree of ambiguity surrounding it that's that makes it a little unique? Yeah. In other words, I'll just use a metaphor, and hopefully I'm not oversimplifying it, but I mean, the modern perception of Pluto is, ah, this thing burns, you know? And yet, Okay, everyone agrees it burns, but why is it that my grandfather was like, what are you talking about? Or, yeah, it feels kind of warm to me. Or, ah, this it is hot. Like, how do we account for all those different experiences? So that's, uh, I'm lifting a mug. Right. <laughs> for those, <laughs> for listening. those that are listening and not watching, <laughs> I was lifting a mug with a drink mm-hmm. in it for that metaphor. Mm-hmm. So, um, so you're saying like, why? Because some astrologers will just say it's the most important thing and it's so obvious what it yeah. means. How could you not? No, yeah. no, immediately what it means. Right. Right. You're contrasting right. that with like five or six decades ago where yeah. astrologers are like, I don't know, it doesn't seem to do anything for some people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, when we get to Pam um, Geisler, okay, so she's got 44 years of experience. And in 2013, she's writing like, well, maybe in another hundred years, we'll understand more about Pluto because uh, its discovery was only 70 to 80 years ago. I'm quoting her. So we are hardly in a position to judge completely what it can do. And then, you know, it goes on. And I'm like, any young person like you would be like, she's out of her mind. Like, what are you talking mm-hmm. about? It's so obvious what it does. So that's a mystery to me. You well, know, I'm not, I'm not saying can... one's right, one's wrong. We need mm-hmm. to figure out what, I'm just saying, I'm, I'm saying it's all true. Why is it all true? That's well, the weird mystery. I think something became woven deeper into like our matrix, right? Mm-hmm. And this idea that we're we're skirting around now, we're coming full on to it. This this spiritual Darwinism became much more embraced. Right. You know, that it's a matter of, you know, it may have been in the early 20th century as we were, you know, kind of absorbing some of these ideas, theosophy, like, oh, we're talking about spiritual consciousness. As more mm-hmm. people reached a critical mass, it's like our spiritual consciousness and how we evolve. And we have more people saying like, well, I'm a very evolved soul. Because what's interesting is that in terms of significations related to what you're saying, we have the development in the broader sense related to the outer planets. Then a refinement comes more so around the 50s and 60s with the nodes between Martin Schulman and Dane Rudger, right? right? And then we have a maturation of that thought or crystallization of those thoughts and ideas into the 70s and 80s. -hmm. So by that time, we have more people who came to believe that we can talk about consciousness, the evolution, 
of it and heightened or lower consciousness in very clear and what seems evident terms. Which is interesting because now that is also, I won't say under attack, but under critique. And, but previously, it's been a buildup to that, and that was like its crescendo moment. Mm -hmm. So I think what happened is that it just became absorbed in our culture. It's like, well, you, you know, there's, yeah. a, there's a book, um, oh man, it just came out recently by a physician. It's on healing something or other, but it's actually an analysis of all the recent research on the placebo effect and the nocebo effect. And there's tons of research in the medical literature. It's all in this book. It's really great. And I read it and I thought, wow, this has implication for us. Because one of the implications is that there is, he notes, and, and this has been studied, and I wish I could articulate it better, but cultural beliefs have an influence on us as individuals, even if we as individuals don't partake of that particular belief. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if somehow that is a piece of this Pluto puzzle that we defined it kind of clearly as a culture. And so now it's having an effect, which also, are we creating our own reality with some of this stuff? Mm. And like I say, if you took someone who didn't know anything, put a different spin on Pluto, would they be able to overcome that cultural belief? Would they, would they find something different uh, in its transits? I don't know. So I think you're proposing yeah. an experiment where we get a brand new astrology student and we put them in a room <laughs> yes. and we teach them that Pluto yes. is a benefic planet yes. and that they need to follow their yeah. transits, just believing that and yeah. see if they will have the opposite experience and yes. say, Kenneth, and start to like question your teaching. Right, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Another I'm, thing is, you know, and I'll, we're, I just we're not fully serious. This I, is not yeah, just I don't a wanna, disclaimer. I don't want to forget this <laughs> point before we reach the end. Um, we got to be more on the ball when these objects are found because we attribute a, a mythological name or creature to the thing, and it's usually a malefic force now. And I'm like, we need to like tell <laughs> right? these astronomers like pause. And we need more benefics of the world. And, you know, like we keep, you know, blowing it with, with each thing. That's I know. Discovered. I mean, when I read like the delineation with Sedna, or I should say the mythology, I was like, <laughs> yeah, oh, right. how would we do that? Yeah. Right? Yeah. That's horrible. Well, right. and that's one of the discussions yeah. that came up recently online with they're trying to name some new planetary yeah. or celestial body and the the push to like start reaching out to like other cultural mythologies yes. instead of just continuing mm -hmm. to use purely like Western cultural myths. Yeah. Right. Well, like in Indian astrology, the myths around the planets are quite different than the Western counterparts. Mm -hmm. And um, so there is a, a cultural piece to this that we often don't talk about, you know. Mm -hmm. um, sure. right? Yeah. I wanted to say one alternate um, explanation for, yes. for because um, it definitely can be a self-fulfilling prophecy community-wide in mm -hmm. terms of, or, you know, something, you know, cultural that we yep. then absorb. But I think also like a potential simpler explanation could be just that there was a consensus finally around either observations or theories or whatever about what Pluto means. And then everyone newer coming into the field knows that off the bat yes. and knows what to look for off the bat yes. and then mm -hmm. sees all yes. the charts and said, yes, it's indeed manifesting in all of these ways. And so it's not as confusing to them yes. because it's like, yes, I see that and it's working the way. So it's, you know, I just I, want to throw that I out there. I wish that were right, I but I don't <laughs> think it is. I think if we were to really dig into it, 
it, it, that isn't what happened. I think what happens is you have a big book published. Sure. That's very accessible. Yeah. And now everyone starts to get on the same page. But, and, um, and but, I, but well, I mean, that's well, a critique we, we you could well, make I, of I, a I lot mean, of I, things. We don't have to put it just on a book. I mean, that yeah. book could just yes. Some, yes. symbolize a coalescence of yes. ideas. Yes. Yeah. That have been germinating. Right. For a while. And yes. then, like, you know, in terms of Rob's ideas, because right. if you read his book, Again, um, you'll see, I mean, the psychological model of astrology, right. going back to Leo, Ellen yes, Leo. I mean, yes. that had been in development for yes. at least like... Yeah, and that's know, a great point because some of the statements that have been made about Rob's book is some like detractors try to say that he it was just warmed over Eberton and the cos combination of stellar influences. And I don't think that's the case. And I think that's going way too far, but he was definitely influenced heavily influ yeah. influenced by Eberton. Yeah. So... That's a great point that you're making. That there was a, a longer buildup to that, and that wasn't yeah. just like Rob himself coming out of nowhere with a bunch of stuff, yeah. but instead he was he was synthesizing some some traditions that he was drawing on at that point. Mm -hmm. But but even your argument to me falls down in the fact that in modern times and with modern younger astrologers, it is so obvious Pluto's meaning. Sure. Yeah, and I don't disagree yeah. with you in terms yeah. of. I don't actually think that everyone like closely observes and makes sure that like I, I do think that people take um, you know for granted when they read something in an mm. astrology book they don't think like oh anyone could write an astrology book and then it's out in print and then you take it as an <laughs> right. authority so I do actually agree that plenty of people just take that for granted and run with it and don't necessarily keep testing it all the time or rethink it or am I definitely seeing this play out that way right. so I agree with you in that respect yeah. and by the way I asked Lisa I dragged her into this episode because I knew she'd do a better job of pushing back against <laughs> Uh, some oh, of the arguments great. that, that think, both of you I wanted think to make. Four of us are doing great. Right? Uh, whereas I was going to play more of the yeah. mediator and occasionally push back a little. But uh, so, so, so please be yeah. forceful, Lisa, yeah. in pushing back. I've been and recruited for a specific course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You guys can go at it. I mean, what would your, you know, if you were teaching a beginning student, uh, what keywords would you throw out for Pluto? Well, before I answer that, yes. I want to say one of the things that I actually think is one of the issues with yeah. why we can't narrow this down more than we, we have so far is with the traditional planets, there's other traditional rules to, to, <laughs> yes. to specify how is yes. this going to play out, not just the entire range of possibilities around an archetype, right? Right. So let's, and so, let's so, name some. Yeah. So there's like traditional dignities, for instance. Right. Um, so, you know, is a planet in its own rulership? Is it, you know, exalted, et cetera? Right. Um, there's sect, you know, is this going yes. to behave more um, positively mm -hmm. or, you know, with more challenges given a right. day or night chart? Things like this right. are really helpful in terms of being more right. specific with your astrology. Well, with the outer planets, we don't have any rules like that, right? right? So we have the entire archetype to play with. Yeah. And for me, that's what I've noticed anyway as like a huge factor yeah. in why it's more broad. I think that's a fantastic point. I'm I'm glad you you raised it, uh, because um, yeah, you're right. We don't have those other containers to modify it, so it just has mm -hmm. to carry carry everything, right? right. And is, I think is... it, and I think that might be. Although I've never heard this articulated before, but I'm sure I'm not the first. That might be why they were called transpersonal, because they aren't contained by dignity and other factors mm -hmm. that we might uh, put on the traditional planets, right? Um, right, because there's something. Well, you're, you're, I don't okay, know here we go. Here we go. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> Come, bring, I'm, not bring it on, I'm not disagreeing fully with that because I don't know for certain. Yeah, 
But I think it goes to the thing that we're talking about. I mean, they're, they're an argument about how consciousness works. Mm-hmm. And in terms of being transpersonal, like I said, it's kind of like this augmented belief that we're going beyond how we have been as a species. Mm-hmm. And the question, again, going back to what we said earlier, oh. is that true? Okay, mm-hmm. so okay. Mm-hmm. So my use of the word transpersonal was, I think, more in the, I think the, I can't, we can't use traditional, the modern, the 20th century astrologer, my understanding was it meant more, it applied more to the culture or the group. Right. It transcended the person. Right. Mm-hmm. So because they were so slow moving, it had a, like a more blanketed Which effect on everything. Which is more how it's affecting us as a species, yes. as, a, mm-hmm. as yes. humanity. Yes. Well, I think yes. people have talked about it as like how it yeah. affects collective more, but also yeah. in terms of a, a certain psychological twist. Right. Like internally. Yeah. I think it's right. also meant that way. Yeah. The other weird thing is the section on uh, consumerism, which I don't know if we want to get into that. But the weird role Pluto appears to play in our own uh, buying habits and oh. generational. Do you remember that section? Yeah, I do yeah. remember that section. I want to <laughs> tap into that. I want to, yeah. you know. Yeah. So, well, first, before I do that, and let's yeah. just remember that, sure. you have actually, there's a question on the table for you, right? So, how would you do that for, um, how would you talk oh. about astrology to a beginning, well, or Pluto to, to a beginner student? Because I also have my own take on that. Yeah. So sure. I mean, I would use a lot of the same keywords. The The problem, though, is I like to be more specific than that. And mm-hmm. so that is actually troublesome for me when I do talk about some of those outer planets, because sure. I can't narrow it down as much as I would like to. Okay. So, you know, but that said, you know, when I talk about any other transits, there is still some range. It's not one thing. And right. so some oftentimes I'll be like, it could be like this type of experience mm-hmm. or this type of situation or circumstance. And I'll name like three or four. And so, so I let's guess- give an example. Let's say Pluto, and let's, instead of talking about it as a natal placement, let's talk about it as a transit. transit so sure. Pluto transiting your seventh house and your descendant. I mean, I've often talked about it in terms of frequently there will be power struggles. Mm-hmm. Um, there will maybe be situations where you get into a situation where you feel like your power is really strongly being challenged and you have to somehow figure out how to deal with that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, with um, also, I think the the uncovering of the hidden, I was just really impressed that that was already in the 1931 C.O. <laughs> Carter yeah. because yeah. there's several of those, like the uncovering of the hidden mm-hmm. that we talk about today very commonly. Yeah. So I would say that, like, for instance, with Pluto transiting the descendant seventh house, like, well, hidden things could come up that you didn't know were going on in your relationship, or you could get in bigger power struggles with your partner and that kind of thing. Just the uncovering of the hidden. I mean, the 2015 flyby where we actually got to see what it looked like and get an idea of its composition. I mean, talk about blowing everyone's expectation. uh, And it's like, wow, there's been a lot of interesting things hidden from us from Pluto. Right. So I want to... Yeah. To, to to tag along with that, and that for me, Pluto I define as in terms of keywords as the digger, how okay. we experience, how we ex- go into to depths. Mm-hmm. But related to the consumerism, I'm not big into like talking about octaves. So we liked it that one of the language the, the language that we use from Theosophy was that the outer planets Neptune is the higher octave of Venus, blah blah blah. But one thing I did find instructive is a thought experiment was like, what if we kind of switched that around? And, and Robert Blaschke came to a similar set of conclusions. So he saw a connection between Pluto and Venus. Hmm. And even if you look at the glyph, one of the glyphs, because there's the PL glyph yep. for Percival Lowell. My favorite. Right? And then there's the other glyph of, like, I call her the dancing, I call it the dancing girl, right? Yep. Which is kind of like, 
the the um what do they call it the cross of manifestation mm-hmm. and the crescent of of yep. soul and then the circle of spirit right yep if you look at that that even has some parallel to venus now where am i going with this what's interesting please pluto does correlate to the idea of desire the depth of desire strong desire obsession mm-hmm. right in terms of what i must have this is what you know i need to have because if you look at the mythos of of pluto of hades there's always some parallel story dealing with desire from you know his introduction to persephone to how we talk about orpheus right and going down there mm-hmm. um there's always some aspect dealing with love or the story of how we deal with the heart and so when i saw that picture mm-hmm. of that flyby i was like yes Pluto has a heart, yes. <laughs> right? So that, I mean, it came, became like almost a testimony yeah. of like how I was thinking about Pluto as really this this weird way in which we experience the depth of heart. Yeah. And in terms of the consumerism, you know, that's kind of going along with this. If there has been any growth or change in human development, it's kind of what we want. We either want to get it faster yeah. or more. Hmm. Yeah. Well, and I speculate that because the United States is a consumer culture, that it has that particular manifestation for us as a as a culture. But anyway, mm-hmm. um, although yeah. still with that argument, yeah. U.S. culture is infecting the world, right? Because yeah. Amazon is everywhere, for yeah. example, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. So there are people who yeah. are expecting, yeah. like, well, why can't I get it yeah. like within like the week? So mm-hmm. I like what you said, Sam, but I will confess that what pop, one of the things that popped in my mind was, well, wait a minute. Um, Zeus has a lot of desire, but we don't use that particular part of the myth in explaining Jupiter. I mean, actually, to be fair, we used to in Valens. If you read the first few oh, things nice. of Valen, like children and procreation and yeah. like things like that were yeah. some of the significations they associate with Jupiter yeah. early on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but we've forgotten about that. I was glad though, Sam, that you brought up the idea of octaves because that's another one of those things that developed during the course of the past century where that was another one of the access points where astrologers attempted to come up with significations for the outer planets was by trying to make correspondences and say certain outer planets were connected with certain inner planets by being higher octaves of that. But there were different systems for doing that. I think there was one or two that were more popular, but I've seen a number of different variations of that. And that's another access point that astrologers have attempted to use. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, so I mean the I mean most... the traditional one was what? Mars is Mars higher... is Uranus. Uranus is the higher octave of Mars. I thought and... it was Mercury. I honestly don't know because oh, no, no, no. there's a lot of You're them. right. Yeah, it was the Mercury. traditional Uranus is, is Mercury. Uranus is Mercury, you're yeah. right. Yeah, and Mars is Pluto. Even though Mars is Pluto and then Venus is Neptune. Venus and Neptune. Yep. Right. <laughs> and yet I would argue if you just did a keyword analysis, Uranus would match more Mars and I Pluto agree. would match more Mercury. Mm-hmm. Because if if the transformation planet is, or the caterpillar into butterfly planet is Pluto, who used to rule that? And that was Mercury. Mercury. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. So he he took some stuff from sure. Mercury sure. more more than we usually think about. 
Well, and it's interesting the yeah. other way around too. Like when I was doing all my research on like Saturn and sect things and Saturn returns, yeah. I, I really realized like halfway through that so many of the significations that used to be associated with Saturn got put on Pluto once Pluto was yeah, discovered. Absolutely. And yeah. I was like, that's bizarre. And that's yeah. how Saturn got yeah. to be nicer because, right. <laughs> because Pluto took all of the negative yeah. you know, associations and now Saturn just gets to be constructive, but that's not actually how it yeah, plays I, out. <laughs> I, you know, I was fascinated by that, just yes. noticing that. Shift. There's so many different changes with that. I mean, yeah. I think Neptune took a lot of the moon significations. Mm -hmm. I also even kind of joked related to the moon and the nodes, uh, especially like the south node, I would say. The south node, I think I tweeted this recently. I said, the south node wrote Neptune. I want my significations back. You know, it's kind of like this idea. <laughs> You know, I haven't done this, but it would be interesting to look at Alan Leo or other like 19th century astrologers to see how they were using Uranus and Neptune in their natal uh, readings and examples mm -hmm. and their books. Because I honestly don't know the answer to that. Because one of the reasons why I think they play the role today they do is that in the 20th century, what happened? You had the downplay of houses, the... Um, uh, increase in play of the aspects between planets. And so when you get rid of part of our language, more weight has to be carried by these other things. Right. And so the outer planet significations start to expand to like cover what's been lost by sort of like not paying attention to houses or not paying attention to planetary dignity. Or rulership, like, mm -hmm. yeah. Or mm -hmm. ruler, yeah. So that you've got, um, well, now how am I going to get my meaning? I'm just sort of looking at aspects now and... So more has to go on the planets. Yeah. And now I've, at least I've got the outer planets to pick up the slack. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And I mean, I'm not really a fan of the octaves either, but I do think that there can be overlap, like authentic overlap between significations of some of the outer planets and some of the inner planets. Mm -hmm. I think there can be, I, I would say there's overlap even between some inners and inners. Right. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, yeah, life is complicated. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, so... Uh, and you mentioned that article, Saturn and Sect, and that was actually in the first Ascendant Journal originally. Mm -hmm. yeah. What was the title of that? Um, I think just Saturn Returns in Sect. Okay. And that's, yeah, it got republished again recently. On astro.com right. recently. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's very exciting. And that's nice. a really good article for anybody that wants to understand either the concept of Saturn Returns or the concept of Sect, which is the distinction between day and night charts. So you can find that now on astro.com's website mm -hmm. in their articles section. Yep. Cool. Yeah. Um, all right, so octaves. We talked about octaves. Uh, I'm not a big fan of the octaves thing either, um, for various reasons. But uh, should someone champion it? Maybe I should defend. I, I don't understand it I, enough to defend. Well, it. Well, yeah. one of the objections that traditional astrologers make is they will push back and say that too many of the significations of the traditional planets have been ripped off from the traditional planets and applied to the outer planets, which has weakened the astrologer's ability to interpret the full variety of significations of the mm. traditional seven. Mm -hmm. Correct. Mm -hmm. So is that an argument that, I mean, we all tend a little bit traditional at this point, so is that something we would all get on board with? Yeah, I mean, mm -hmm. even though I don't, mm -hmm. like I said, we I'm should, not a fan We should have them. invited a strict modern astrologer. Right, right. <laughs> but then it would have been like four <laughs> on one. Right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, that wouldn't have been fair. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but Lisa's playing a good role in pushing yeah, back. What were good. some of the other points, though? Yeah, that bring you're, up more points. I'm trying to remember what you were, else you're going to push back on. Um, um, one of them was just the idea that sometimes an outer planet when it's prominent, can do things on its own, and it does not need to be necessarily connected to an inner planet or something to manifest. Yeah, I think mm -hmm. that's kind of the modern 
take. Well, that, and that's what yeah. she, a point she was going to yeah. argue more strongly. Well, though. only in that I was just, you know, reading through yeah. your article again and, yeah. you know, talking about some of the other people saying takes like, well, it can only express if it's right. an aspect with an inner planet yeah. or something. And you would well, disagree right. with that. Yeah. Well, yeah. 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 Well, I would say mo most modern, modern, modern astrologers would agree with your position. I right. mean, I also yeah. wouldn't overemphasize it, yeah. you know, yeah. where I think sometimes it is overemphasized yeah. these well, days. Well, some but. traditional astrologers, like I'm thinking, I think like Warnock tries to say, treat the outer planets like fixed stars and yes. say that they have that mm -hmm. only that limited capabilities to yeah. only pay attention to like very close conjunctions and you yeah. wouldn't look at like other Ptolemaic aspects, for example. Yeah. Right. right. What about angles? Do you, would you say, like when you're saying that it doesn't have to be to inner planets, are you then saying that it's more about in terms of aspects to angles? Or like it could be anywhere in a house. So I like think, Uranus. Or on I think it colors a house. Uh, so if Uranus it's there. going into the twelfth house still. Has yeah, I think it still colors a house. I mean, I would definitely, I definitely think that you can integrate it with some other rules, such as yes, it's going to be more prominent if it's on an angle, because anything angular is more prominent. Right. You know, but um, no, but I, I do think it still means something. I think the other one was uh, generational. Right. Like a lot of people try to say they're not specific. They're not specifically meaningful to you as a person. They're more generational influences. That's an older. That'd be. Yeah. That'd be even before my generation. Mm, right. I mean, I mean I've heard, heard people that. say that yeah. though. My issue yeah. though with that. Let's let's go with Uranus for a second. With Please. that. And I I could I could go with the argument in terms of a temporary mm, midpoint with with saying okay, let's say Uranus going into the second house by transit, that could be descriptive of an adjustment maybe within its first year. Right. In terms right. of someone's experience of like the shock of dealing with Uranus in the second. But I would find it hard to believe if a client came to me like, you know, Uranus has been in my second house for like six years destroying me. Like, I don't know if I would believe that. Like mm -hmm. Uranus, really? I mean, like not because Uranus can't do that. Six years. Right. That's not Uranus. That might be mismanagement of your funds. It might be it might be a lot of things right. happening, but I don't know if I could just like isolate it to it being in a particular house. Sure. I mean, there's always, you know, as you mentioned earlier, Kenneth, if you look at a long enough span of time, there's always lots of other things going on at the same time. And right. that's actually kind of part of how I use outer planets is I look at what's concurrently going on. And see, does that sway it this way or does that sway it that way? Right. Um, and use more traditional techniques to do that. Right. Um, and that but was the, one of the So you use that... it as an additive factor. Mm -hmm. Is this the three logs that make a fire, so to speak? Exactly. Yeah. So the one of the things that impressed you is how outer planets can sometimes work with the traditional techniques like perfections. Yeah, I've actually seen that just recently, and I haven't... Um, done a ton with it yet to keep, you know, get like a hundred examples or something, but I've definitely seen it trigger perfections. Like for instance, if you're in a 12th house year or a sixth house year, and then transiting Neptune or transiting Pluto comes to conjoin the ruler of that perfected sign. Oh yeah. I've definitely seen that. And that's fascinating because that's mm -hmm. a like that one way that you yeah. can integrate them. Yeah. Um, and one way to explain again, why sometimes nothing happens and sometimes, sometimes something, something happens. happens. Yeah, yeah. Because without another timing technique, you know, if the inner planet that's being a see, this is interesting. So it may be that 
if you don't know at home, uh, the perfected house activates its lord or ruler. So when you have an outer planet transit, it, maybe it won't have such a dramatic effect on a planet that isn't activated by one or another timing systems, but right. but more dramatic when, for example, a perfected. So mm -hmm. that's a fascinating thing. And I would expect that actually, right? according to the principles of perfection. Right. <laughs> you right. I mean, so you can yeah. use some of these other yeah. principles yeah. and then use some of the yeah. you know outer planets within that, yeah. I think, in interesting ways. And I yeah. think that now is just kind of like the beginning of when people can start to do that because enough people know a lot of these other rules. Yep. Um, but just like any other transit won't always be one thing. Any right. Saturn transit's not going to be one thing. And people then argue endlessly over Saturn means this. No, it means this because they mm -hmm. have different triggers going on and they right. have different specific rulerships in the chart, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I think that also happens yeah. with the, the uh, outer planet transits. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and I think, I mean, the one thing to always kind of emphasize is some level of proactivity, especially in terms of talking about the outer. So I'm a Pisces rising, right? So Sweet. Uh, when <laughs> when Neptune went over to the exact degree of my ascendant, um, I felt pretty ungrounded in that sense. So that signification of feeling that. But what I did proactively, and I was talking about this, the and then, well, yesterday at dinner, it just <laughs> seems like it's like a week ago. Um, last night at dinner, one of the things they talked about, so one of the reasons why I converted to Islam was not dogmatic and it wasn't as a matter of dogma. Um, it was a matter of like literally wanting to kind of connect to the ground at least five times a day. I thought that was a lovely idea of actually grounding Neptune. You went through a, a religious conversion when Neptune hit your ascendant? Yeah. Wow. Okay. So yeah, it's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But I'm also, you know, as an astrologer, you know, you have to look like, well, did I do that because... I'm an astrologer and yeah. dealt with the signification or... I mean, while I realize that's always a threat and I'm sure there's astrologers that sometimes do that sort of self-fulfilling prophecy, I'm always convinced because I try to be cognizant of that possibility, how often that's really not the case where you really right. are just like mm -hmm. going on and living your life as an astrologer and you do notice that this thing is going on, but you're not like forcing yourself to like go through that much upheaval or that radical of a change of beliefs or lifestyle just because you're you have that in the back of your mind like it's actually just something that's happening in your life mm -hmm. although the flip side to the placebo effect i talked about earlier which is the nocebo effect or you think something bad's going to happen is going to and it happens um there are astrologers and lay people who see they've been taught that pluto's bad they see something bad coming and they've been thinking something bad's gonna happen, something bad's gonna happen, something's gonna bad happen. And now during this time period, something bad is gonna happen because bad things happen all the time, right? Good and bad. So it's just something to be. I think we, as professional astrologers, of course, have to be aware that we're not like putting fear into someone and then they're manifesting things from their fear. Right. Yeah, and and all of this is part of the broader like epistemology of how do we develop. Uh, put constraints and develop meanings on you know specific things in astrology in our personal yeah. practice, and and what kind of um, things can we put in place to do that carefully and deliberately, so that it, we're not being influenced by factors that are not actually uh, coming from the thing that we're trying to study. Right. All right. Um, so I'm trying to figure out where we're going with this and where we've ended up. So we, <laughs> you guys. Are, I mean, we're talking about the outer planet, so we went into the outer limits. <laughs> yeah, and I think it's actually been a really good discussion so far. I'm trying to think if we need to take it in any specific directions before we start heading to the towards the end of this. Have we covered all of one of the things we didn't cover is the rise 
of the use of mythology in the 20th century, as well as the idea of synchronicity between whatever the body gets named and that having some right. great symbolic significance, which astrologers immediately start drawing on and assuming has astrological, like tangible astrological meaning. And that to me, I think, is a big difference where even though mythology was much more prominent in ancient times and much more like part of the culture in a very literal way, um, in ancient texts like Ptolemy or Valens, I don't see them invoking mythology to describe or explain the significations of the planets as much as you would expect if you were coming to it as a modern astrologer, and that that was more of a new, relatively new development that also developed in the 20th century and really changed how astrologers approached dealing with the significations of new bodies. So that's a whole issue in and I mean, of itself. Yeah, I mean, that is and, a big issue. And I think that Pluto's, because Uranus as a planet and Uranus as the myth, I, it's not a real good, the astrological it's thing, it's not a fit. And Neptune isn't really a fit. It's not like we have a bunch of mythology about the god of the sea being like, Confused and wishy-washy and right. stuff, which implies, with, which implies to me that yeah. those two planets might have been developed. Their meanings astrologically might have been developed more empirically. Right. Whereas by the time mm -hmm. you get to Pluto, astrologers are just yes. drawing right on the mythology. And then every body after that, it's like, oh, we start. Let's wait and see what the name is, and now let's read the myths, and now we'll start delineating charts. Yeah, well, mm -hmm. and that's exactly, and that's yeah. almost sometimes like the only thing. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I've heard two answers to that because I mean, like I've gone to the severe side, the more Saturn side, and be like, oh, I think that's a sloth. Um, and slothful in terms of like astrologers kind of like, seven deadly sins, <laughs> you know, astrologers kind of just like heeding what astronomers say and going like, okay, crib notes, thanks. We're going to use that and go with that. Um, but one answer that did come to me from actually jo Jeffrey Cornelius, okay. um, is that it could be a moment and I'm not buying this. I'm just saying that this is like an answer. Um, it could be a moment of divine synchronicity. And I right. think you alluded to that, that. This idea that, well, the astronomers named it that because that's what the cosmos wants mm -hmm. that planet to be named. Right. And that is the underlying, usually implicit uh, philosophical assumption that astrologers are making when they go that direction and use that approach. And that's it's right. become so commonplace that people just use it at this point as a principle without even sometimes even recognizing that that's what they're doing or just taking for granted that that's what they're doing as if that's like, of course you can do that. Or of right. course they assume, they project it back and assume that that's always been the case. But in fact, some of the traditional significations of the planets developed um, from other thing, things entirely aside from the mythology and having nothing to do with the mythology. Pause for a second. I, just, I made this point before, <laughs> but I'll do it again. Given that, why aren't those same astrologers taking the demotion of Pluto as some cosmological synchronistic sign that we need to change how we treat it in astrology? Well, you said, as you also said, some do, some did, right? I mean, I don't know. No, I don't know if, if anyone did. I thought some did. did. Okay. No, I don't know of anyone who has. I haven't known anyone who's raised the question other than me, although I'm sure other people have, but um, mm -hmm. it's, it's kind of like we ignored it. In fact, I'm still surprised at how many astrologers don't know what Pluto actually looks like. They're just not even like keeping up with the news. Mm -hmm. So they wait, Pluto has a heart. I mean, I'm still like in the last month, I've run into people that didn't know what had been discovered recently about Pluto. So I hear that argument. 
But then it's like, well, if that is your argument, then don't we need to take this seriously? Like if science is sort of acting as a proxy, a synchronistic proxy for astrologers, mm -hmm. then shouldn't we be paying more attention to what they're what they're doing? And well, actually thinking about it, symbolic, I've never thought of this before because I thought of that, but I think most astrologers maybe generally might think, yeah, sure, but they don't know what then symbolically that means. But actually thinking about it, maybe the symbolic significance of that and I hope I, I don't get struck down uh, by some cosmic rays for saying this, but maybe Pluto is not as important as we thought it was. That could be one of the symbolic. Uh oh. Yeah. I'm so, yeah. I, I hope if I drop dead tomorrow, like I think you we know. can take that as a counter. It, it's signal. not. I would say. Okay, if we want to now go way out. If you want to go there, then we'll go there. You know, uh, I would say I, I don't think it's going to strike you down because I think what Pluto is is a place. For us to put our shadow, our darkness, you know, I mean, when you're scared of a shadow, you're really scared of the shadow until you figure out, wait a minute, it's just a shadow. But until then, your body is having a physiological experience of fear. And I'm wondering if Pluto has become this receptacle of just all of our negative stuff. I mean, that, that's Pluto. Hang, hang on, hang on. <laughs> and if that is the case... It's not that it's less important, it's that we've misunderstood the meaning of Pluto, which is it's a mirror to ourselves. And we've just been putting on it all the negative things. I mean, what if we. That's a deep psychological read of it. What about some actual. I like deep psychological reads. I mean, reads that, yeah. As a but, non psychological But that doesn't astrologer. mean it doesn't have like physical correlates or material correlates in terms of people's experience, right? I mean, that's always a question with astrology. So mm -hmm. we'll just put mm -hmm. that on the table, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. That could be any number of factors for yeah. why X happened. Yes. Right? But yes. I mean, there are people who have had experiences yeah. Yeah. of Pluto, like conjoined, like I can testify to myself. Yep. When Pluto conjoined my son, mm -hmm. um, my mother died. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was a Plutonian experience. Other things also happened mm -hmm. that testified to it. Was that my lunar return? Mm -hmm. All these other things progressed lunar return, just to be clear. Um, but I did mean, did you look at the converse tertiary? I didn't know. I didn't look at the converse tertiary. Tonight, we'll I mean, do that. okay, it could have been that, but I mean, it could have been all these multitude of factors. But one thing I do remember looking at was like Pluto conjoined my son. Uh huh. Now, did Pluto kill my mama? <laughs> no. <laughs> um, but Pluto did signify some particular event that wasn't just psychological or my shadow. Right. I mean, it did evoke those things. Okay, I see what you're going. And I, I didn't mean to imply that. I, I agree with you. I'm not saying it's just a psychological thing. I'm saying that it becomes a golem for, like we make it into something real. Um, mm. And do we, can we make it into something else? I mean- With no disrespect to Pluto. <laughs> are you saying that metaphysically? Like that we, I'm, can we question. do that? I'm just, yeah, I'm asking metaphysically. Because I, I yeah. do feel similarly to yeah. Sam, you know, like that not everyone is, is as deeply enamored with Pluto as like yeah. overemphasizing it. And I know yeah. that like, I don't feel like I do, but I've still had some major Pluto transits yeah. that sure. correlated with some major events yeah. Yeah. Um, that are typified by Pluto keywords. Yeah. Uh, other things were happening in the chart as well that mm -hmm. I could track, you know, mm -hmm. to say why it would definitely be something like this. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't know if, you know, I was thinking, speaking to the the moment of synchronicity for discovery, I wonder if that's, I don't think most people think about it as, as clearly as this, but I do think maybe there's an idea that like the moment of discovery is a certain synchronicity. Yeah. And so maybe the 2006, for instance, isn't being thought of that way because we're not saying everything about 
that planet subsequently is like equally important, kind so of like an inception moment. I don't remember the chart, but you can look up the time it was demoted and look at Pluto's place in that chart. Mm. And I remember it being very interesting and telling, mm -hmm. you know, when you compare it to the discovery chart, mm. you look at the Chiron, Pluto in the Chiron chart, and then you look at the Pluto in the, in the, in the chart of it being demoted. Mm. Um, again, do this at home, folks. But I, I remember it just being very suggestive of like, oh, wow, this mm. chart looks like someone's like getting demoted, you know? Oh, um, huh. So yeah, look at that. It's uh, it's interesting. Hmm. We'll have to link all these charts yeah. to the episode. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, we'll see what it can do. Yeah, and I wanted yeah. to put it out there that if, you know, people, some people might object to the, what I was saying earlier about it maybe being less important in when it was demoted at that point. Um, and or change it just changed some sort of change related it's, it's to it. I mean, what if Pluto is the planet of coming to you in the darkness to help, but because it only shows up when we're experiencing some crisis, we have put oh, you're the harbinger of doom. It's like no, I'm actually here to help you. Hold your hand through it. Well, yeah, but that, but that's exactly ultimately what's behind the tra transformation keyword that you guys were were objecting to at the beginning of the episode. Is right. that's why they use transformation as a euphemism because they're trying to explain that it's part of some broader, almost like providential design of going through a difficult or a traumatic period that strips away a lot of things often in a way that's experienced as subjectively difficult or negative but that ultimately has some broader uh growth type or evolutionary type potential mm -hmm. so you you just circled back around to what yes. the modern like sort of interpretation is yes. broadly speaking uh, but I wanted to say if people didn't like whatever that suggestion was I threw out earlier then come up with a different suggestion I'd love to hear suggestions if other people have speculations about if there is any symbolic significance of Pluto being demoted back in 2006 or whatever it was, yes, like what what is that? Yeah, I mean, and the then things... and then the stuff we found out in 2015, you know, blue atmosphere, water, warm. Mm -hmm. Like they mm -hmm. we don't know where the warmth comes. We from. don't know why Pluto is warm. Mm -hmm. You know, and remember the little girl who named Pluto thought of it because she thought, oh, it's so distant, cold, and she had just learned uh, mythology in school. And so she's like, let's call it Pluto, you know. So turns out it's got weird warmth and stuff. So I mean, mm -hmm. there's a lot, lot going on with Pluto that uh, we need to meditate on. Sure. And, and one of the things that's happening now since then, since that demotion, is that there's like tons of not just small asteroids and stuff. There's other major, um, almost planetary bodies being discovered. And I think they're still doing sure. like a search right now for like a major body. That's what Mike Brown is doing. Yeah, yeah. they're yeah. on the search right now on the hunt for like a major, what they think is a big planetary body Calling out planet there. Planet X, yeah. And these, this isn't just like- The new Planet X. Yeah. Ironically, we may end up with 12. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll see. We'll see what happens, uh, but we're all mm, waiting and that in and of itself will be like a new epoch, not just in astronomy, but in astrology. Um, one of the things, though, that I think would be good is sometimes astrologers taking a little bit more time to figure it out and yeah. like letting mm -hmm. it play out. Because I've also seen one of the things I've noticed over the past decade is this this kind of like rush sometimes for people to publish or to like be the first to publish and get down what the significations and the meanings are of a new planet. Like there's like four or five different books on Eris already at this point, and wow. it hasn't been around for that long. No. Um, and I have to admit, I have not studied all of them that closely. So they may actually be perfectly brilliant and deep and insightful and thoughtful works on that subject. It just seemed from the outside that some of them had been published relatively quickly 
after the discovery of that, and, that and that's body. a reasonable mm-hmm. question I and mean, he's mm-hmm. like well how can we know because there's always this lingering issue of like are we doing quote-unquote empirical studies right. of astrology mm-hmm. or is this more philosophical mm-hmm. speculative which is fine i mean like we we've also talked about the speculative nature of some of the significations to the traditional seven you know like how those came about right right so maybe there's a tradition that we can extend even to these new discoveries but I still agree with you that we should be a lot more contemplative and cautious mm-hmm. about how we come up with these meanings. But you're right. I mean, like between Sedna, right, and the books that have come out about Sedna, like yeah. find out what your Sedna means. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think people do rush to that because of the mythological. They're like, I can explain it right now because yeah. I know the right. mythology. Right. I've, I've read like, you know, a few books. And, yeah. and I mean, I'm not to say that some people might actually not actually be tracking this, you know, also. But I think it often comes out of the mythology. And that's why people can rush to do it. I think another alternative that I just want to throw out since you were joking about it earlier is like we need more positively named planets like i mean there's that other theory out there that it's more of a causative thing where like by the act of us naming it collectively it turns into that and that's kind of the approach behind the um a lot of the asteroids i think a lot of the little you know i mean think of the planet's point of view it's just been waiting to be discovered by us and then finally it is and then it's like wait you're giving me this job (laughs) i could have been the guardian angel planet i could have been the blessings to ever the universal healing solvent right we need a letter writing campaign to the iau (laughs) (laughs) i mean there's an attempt for this new planet right to kind of solicit names right or this yeah right new thing yeah so yeah, I don't know. Yeah, have some in the ready. You know, uh, get into the mess well, and pull we also, out some good ones. But we also got in trouble control. doing that too. We we had plenty in the ready, like Pluto. Pluto wasn't just like that's true. <laughs> right. what, what is her name? Vivian, who, the little girl. The little named, girl, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. I mean, she named it, but Pluto had already been circulating. And yes. then, of course, we had Vulcan. Yeah, that had been circulating, and then all these other names. Like I, I think there was a Pan. We had a Pan. Yeah, uh, waiting. So. You know, we've we've had no shortage of names. Yeah. Um, And I meant to mention one of the interviews I want to do at some point is Kieran LeGrice, who I interviewed, and we did a great episode a while back on Jung's conceptualization and theories for the mechanism underlying astrology. He actually has written a book on Eris that I've been meaning to check out because he said in his defense, he said, like I have gone through, and one of the things I try to do in the book is review the different ways that astrologers historically have developed the meaning of planets um, in addition to or not just in terms of the mythology. So I, I, at some point, I'll hmm. hopefully talk to him about that to Who see Who is if, this again? Um, he's this cool uh, scholar named Kieran Legrice. I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly, but he wrote um, a, a great book about Jung and Jung's work on astrology. And he's also written a couple or a few other books at this point on astrology like modern, he's of the Tarnas school. <clears throat> he went to CIAS and studied under Richard Tarnas and has written some books in that like vein of of that school of astrology. Mm-hmm. Cool. Anyway, so I'll have to look into that at some point and maybe in a few future episode. In the meantime, um, we're getting towards the end of this. So what sort of final things do we need to settle on? Where have we come? Have we come to some sort of conclusions with this, have we have we accomplished anything? Have we been transformed? I feel right. like we haven't talked about Neptune enough, but no, uh, yeah, we'll ne- another, we another night, another yeah. night. Uh, Neptune. I did like that you quoted Alan White because that's always been one of my favorite. Um, you actually just mentioned you use his first name because you're mentioning people anonymously, but I wanted oh, yeah. to give him credit. That is Alan White. 
who always said, and I always like this interpretation of Pluto, where he says he take it takes small things and makes them big, and big things and makes them really small. Yeah. Um. So he again, in tying in with that sort of modern astrologer thing, which you may not agree, may or may not agree with about tying the discovery of Pluto closely or roughly approximating or being tied into the discovery of the atom bomb or some of the things surrounding nuclear fusion. Um. That being like an example of taking something like an atom and splitting it and it turning into like a mushroom cloud, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. and that being like part of the imagery that he associated with Pluto, I always thought was interesting and sort of a useful metaphor for part of what it seems to do astrologically. Um, yeah, so I was glad you quoted him in the article as yeah. one of like many astrologers. Yeah. All right, guys. Well, I think that's it for this episode. Another we fantastic said, right, episode. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We we said we we're going to keep it under two hours. We are at one hour and fifty four minutes, so I wow. think we've accomplished that. We have. Um, thank you guys so much for joining me today for coming thank you into for town. Having us. Yeah, thank mm-hmm. you for having us. It's always a pleasure being on your show, Chris. Yeah, and, and live. Yeah, uh, yeah. You, you guys are only the second pair of guests that wow. have been in here in the new studio to join us mm-hmm. in person. So second thank you. Second guest on episode two hundred two. Mm-hmm. Let's start looking for the number two right. this week. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Let's play that number. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So thanks for joining me. Be sure to check out uh, Kenneth's article in the second volume of the Ascendant Journal. Uh, Kenneth, how can people get a hold of you if they want to? Kenneth at celestialintelligencer.com. And I think also if you do Kenneth at Kenneth D, as in Donald Miller, uh, dot com or net both of those oh, will I get didn't me. Know well that. but I'm also president of Kepler so you can write president at keplercollege.org and I'll get it. Yeah and definitely yeah. go to Kepler's website which is yeah. Kepler.com uh, no, Keplercollege.org. Oh. oh and also uh, this Saturday well I don't know when you're gonna post this but on the twenty seventh I'll be starting a uh, introduction to Vedic astrology class at, through Kepler. Hmm. Brilliant. Nice. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um and Sam where can people find out more information about you? Unlock astrology um, dot com or also unlockastrology at gmail.com to write me. Okay, mm-hmm. brilliant. Uh, Lisa, what's your website? Yeah, just lisashime.com or yeah. lshime at gmail.com. <laughs> All right, brilliant. And you're scheduling consultations, but you're kind of booked up a little bit at this point. Yeah, but still scheduling, but a few months <laughs> <Yeah>. out. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, and you can, of course, find out more information about me at theastrologypodcast.com. Thanks uh, to everybody who subscribes and listens to the podcast and got us through 200 episodes. Uh, yes. Hopefully, it'll be 200 more, and we'll keep talking about the outer planets and hopefully figure them out by episode 302. Yeah. You guys uh, actually, we should all come back at 404. Right? 404. To recreate. Yeah, well. <laughs> okay. <laughs> or maybe we'll be back next year yes. or two years from now, yes. especially for the conference. Yeah. Mm. Definitely. Yeah. Actually, I'm going to be back in a few months, but I'll talk to you about that later. Yeah, esarastrology.org. Okay, yeah, esarastrology.org yes. for the conference, September of 2020. Yep. Yes, right. Uh, Going to be a big deal for so sign up soon before tickets sell out like they did for Norwalk this right. year. Cool. Okay. Uh, and also thanks to all the patrons uh, who supported us. So yes. for more information, I meant to mention that at the top of the show, if you want to get early access to new episodes, uh, access to higher quality recordings, and a bunch of other uh, Blessings from outer planets. Yeah, exactly. Right, especially Pluto. That's the top tier. Right, <laughs> that's the highest tier. Uh, Raise your consciousness. Uh, you can sign up to become a patron at uh, theastrologypodcast.com slash subscribe and just find our page on Patreon. All right, and uh, thanks, Cam, for running the cameras. Thank you, Cam. Thank you. Excellent Cam. job. I Cam hope. White. All right, that's it for this episode of the Astrology Podcast. So thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you.